A good Wednesday morning to you and welcome back to Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you after a couple of days out of studio. Samuel G. Brooks riding shotgun, the show's technical producer. Four day Uh, weekends need to become more common. I was thinking of of pitching this to you as sort of some sort of a a regular thing, some sort of a norm. Three on, four off. That ain't bad, right? It could be kind of a cool way to do it. So we took a couple of days off. We did a show on Friday. It wasn't a good Friday. It was a great Friday. (laughs) <laughs> on Good Friday. And then we took a couple of days off Monday, Tuesday. It's great to be back. Obviously, the the uh, the the stories and the developments and the news headlines and the trends that people are paying attention to have been piling up. And so as we're producing this show over the course of the weekend, we're going like, OK, we got to fit this voice in and this and this and this. So today's show is is going to move quickly. And then this morning, out of nowhere, we see an interesting development, and uh, I know that people are, you know, real talkers are probably going to have a lot to say about this. Um, Sam, we can even just take, for, for those that are that are watching us right now live on YouTube or watching this later, do you have my, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here ready to go. I've got my Twitter up, um, and, I'm, and I'm getting set to, let me take this full screen. I got, so these are photos posted by journalist Kim Smith, Global News. These are out of their Global News chopper. As we record this, as we stream this live, so this is, you know, 830 Mountain Time, 1030 Eastern on Wednesday, depending on when you listen to this. RCMP vehicles are on scene at the uh, now notorious, the now infamous Grace Life Church just west of Edmonton. As you can see from these images, these are shot from their global news chopper uh, fences and roadblocks like barriers are going up, are being installed. At first, we wondered when we heard uh, a few moments ago, uh, that this was happening, and obviously this would qualify most certainly as a developing news story. I wondered, uh, first of all, uh, one of two things. Is it police putting up the fences and the roadblocks, or is it the church? Like, what's going on here, right? Uh, not to be glib about it, not to take it lightly, but are, are we talking like Waco to a certain degree? I mean, are there fences and roadblocks going up on behalf of the church? It looks like it's the other way around. It looks to me considering the fact that there's cop cruisers evident all over the property, not all over the property, let's not be sensational, but there's enough there to, let's say, maintain some semblance of order. Uh, I would believe that this has something to do uh, with either some form of public health order. We don't know. This is a story that's developing right now. These are just images we're taking a look at, but it looks like now for, for background, for those of you that aren't familiar, uh, this is the church that has absolutely refused to comply with public health orders to the point of their pastor spending a, a, a decent amount of time. What was it, Sam? It was like a few weeks or something it was like almost that. Almost a month, I think. Yeah, almost a month behind <clears throat> bars because you know he, he he refused to comply with public health orders, and and he also really wanted a book deal, and so he's going to get his book deal for sure. And he's become a, a hero and a celebrity for those that that believe that their rights are being trampled on by by public health officials and elected politicians taking measures to to curtail the rapid rise of this third wave of COVID-19 and its variants. We're going to be talking about this a lot today. We've got some interviews coming up that'll focus on on the third wave, uh, you know, sort of the, the undeniable reality of it, what it what it means for you and I, what it means for the frontline health workers that are, that are either back into one right now or bracing themselves for ERs, ICUs to be slammed again. Um, the political response to this 
saw in Alberta yesterday uh, a return to so-called phase one, which will have implications for for bars and restaurants and, and retail shops. I mean, in Ontario today, the provincial government expected to announce a stay at home order, a four week stay at home order. But our leadoff guest, who's going to join us in about 10 minutes, Dr. Kashif Pirzada out of Toronto, is an ER physician in Toronto with with uh, you probably have heard of the group that he co-founded Masks for Canada and Conquer COVID-19. He's been part of this movement of physicians across the country that have said we need to take this way more seriously. He says I'm following him on Twitter. You can do the same. Uh, we tweet out the handles to all of our guests from my account at Ryan Jesperson every morning before we go on air. He's tweeted out that he doesn't even think that the stay-at-home order is going to be enough. So we're going to get into this with Dr. Pirzada and get get his take on that. And then we're going to talk about this this story that's you know been pretty prominent in Alberta over the past number of days, and that is Alberta's chief medical officer of health identifying that there was a serious or is, let me say, a serious outbreak of this this variant of concern. This you know the one with roots in Brazil. Um, a traveler bringing it back and at, at several work sites across the province inadvertently uh, spreading it to colleagues, co-workers and those associated. One person dead already, others in hospital in the, in the province trying to get a handle on this. It, it was interesting because Dr. Dina Hinshaw coming out and saying we are very concerned about a significant outbreak uh, and we'll tell you in a few days a few more details and then, and then postponing that next news conference. People are going, where the hell is it? Not just what workplace, but like. What community, what town or city, what part of the province might be nice to know? Now, there's many different perspectives on this. Some people are saying, well, hang on a second. You know, there are privacy concerns here. There's protocol that the chief medical officer of health has to follow. Other people are saying this is completely unacceptable. This, this lack of information being provided. That includes the mayor out of the town of Edson. And, and he's going to join us coming up a little later on in this show. Like, we're going to get into a lot of, 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 I think, some of the nuanced discussion around, okay, maybe this is the black and white, but what about all these gray areas? What about all the gray areas? So if you're Kevin Zahara, for example, the mayor of, of Edson, by the way, a former press secretary for a, a provincial conservative government in Alberta. So, so the guy's seen this from a couple of different angles. When a former comms professional, now an elected mayor, comes out and says this is totally unacceptable the fact that my office has not even been contacted and there's cases of these variants of concern in my town and nobody knows about it we need to start having conversations about what is the role what are, what are the roles of certain people elected appointed or otherwise and ultimately who do they answer to and ultimately what should be their top priority so we're going to talk to uh, a former chief medical officer of health for Alberta, Dr. James Talbot. That's coming up in about a half hour's time. Now, he wrote a piece a while back where he said there's there's kind of three ways. There's kind of three ways that, it, that a chief medical officer of health can conduct themselves, especially when it comes to, you know, disagreements with the provincial government or with elected officials. He says that, you know, one of them is is, is to speak out. But when you speak out, You've got one shot at it, right? Because you're probably going to get fired. If, if you're a chief medical officer of health, for example, that speaks out against the provincial government, you're probably going to get fired if you do that. So what's another way to do it? Another way, and we're going to get into the whole piece with him coming up in about a half hour's time. But the other way to go around it, he says, is to work behind the scenes with the government. 
And when I, over the course of the weekend, uh, tweeted my personal opinion, which was that Dr. Dina Hinshaw, chief medical officer of health, needs to either provide more information about where these variants of concern are. I'm not saying name the patients. I'm not saying provide sensitive health data, private health data. But if it was, for example, in your community, wouldn't you want to know? Might you behave a little bit differently? I mean, even in the little things, might you not head out to gas up your vehicle if it wasn't absolutely necessary? Might you not head to the grocery store if you didn't really need to, to top up your cans of tomato soup if it could have waited? Little decisions might change if you had that information. And so I said, listen, she needs to either be more upfront about where these cases of concern are. I mean, I compared it to a, a police scenario, a law enforcement scenario. We see these tweets all the time. Well, not, let me say not all the time. And even then, they're too frequently. But police departments saying, listen, there's, there's an active shooter out right now, or there's, a, or there's a situation involving officers, and it is in this neighborhood, or it's in this part of town, and right now we're advising people to stay inside and lock their doors. But can you imagine a police department saying there is a significant crime in progress? We're very concerned about a significant crime in progress somewhere in Alberta. And in a couple of days or in a few days from now, we'll let you know more about it. In the meantime, I don't know, lock your doors. I mean, can you imagine it would be totally unacceptable? So in my personal opinion, as a civilian who I think has his finger on the pulse of the province a little bit because hundreds, if not thousands of you are in touch with this show every week to let us know exactly how you strongly feel about issues. And we're grateful for it. I said, listen, you got to either provide more details. And if you can't, whether it's because of political interference or something else, you should resign. And the resignation itself will say something. It would accomplish something. It would send a very clear message. Well, mixed feedback on that. Some of you said, hell yeah. Some of you said, how ridiculous to be calling for Dr. Dina Hinshaw's resignation after all she's done over the past year. I said, well, first of all, I'm not calling for a resignation. I'm calling for her to provide more information, aren't I? And I'm saying if you can't do that, then the next step should be one of the three options identified by Dr. James Talbot. What really jumped out at me, though, were messages that I received privately off-the-record comments. Some, some of you saying you can read the letter, but you can't say who it's from. Or let me, let me, let me share my thought on this, but, but please don't say it came from me. These types of messages. Several of, several of them from physicians that were saying, please go easy on Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Please. She's our last line of defense against this reckless provincial government, some, one person said. She's, she's working so hard, Ryan, behind the scenes. People have no idea the work that she's doing. And I, I would probably be inclined to agree that we have no idea what this pandemic year has been like for professionals like Dr. Dina Hinshaw, for that matter, for premiers like Jason Kenney and Doug Ford and others, for the prime minister, for ER physicians, for respiratory therapists, for paramedics, for a ton of people. You know, entrepreneurs are going, what about us? You know, stay-at-home parents, teachers are going, what about us? I mean, we get it. The fact of the matter is pretty much everybody's been impacted. So ultimately, we'll ask Dr. James Talbot 
when it comes to the office of the chief medical officer of health, what role do they play? To whom are they accountable? And what would be the right response to this variant outbreak scenario in particular, in his opinion, based on his experience? I'm curious to know where you'll feel or where you'll land on that real talkers. We're also going to get into your thoughts on the vaccine rollout. That was the subject of our most recent get real question of the week. The team at Y station are the official research and strategy partner of real talk have compiled our, our top line report. Almost 900 of you answered our question of the week this week. We really appreciate it. If you are one of our Patreon supporters and we're so grateful for that, um, you can find more about that at ryanjesperson.com. Check your email inboxes because you've already got the exclusive full top line report. But we'll get into some of that data. Pretty interesting stuff. One of the spoilers. Let's take a look, Sam. The, the one graphic, the, the overwhelming graphic, the overwhelming stat. You know the one I'm talking about? Check this out. When it comes to real talkers and what you told us on whether or not you plan on getting the COVID-19 vaccine, I think it was at 842 respondents. I think I'll check the, the, the specifics when we dive into this later, when we sink our teeth into it. Ninety seven percent of you told us that you plan on getting the covid-19 vaccine. Ninety seven percent. Pretty interesting stuff. But there's some hesitance. There's some interesting points brought up and we'll get into that. That's coming up this show and. Every show that we do is proudly presented by our presenting sponsor, the team at Bitcoin. Well, it's it's been an interesting year for crypto. I don't have to tell you that we check in every month ish with founder and CEO Adam O'Brien of Bitcoin. Well, and try to make sense of of how crypto fits into a, a post pandemic economy. For example, there are these angles. It's really interesting. I mean, this 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 reset, this pandemic reset is impacting all different sectors, including finance. If you're starting to rethink what your financial sovereignty looks like, either personally or with your business, go ahead and have a conversation with the team at Bitcoin Well. See what might be a good fit for you. You can find the link to their website under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. All right. In just a minute, we'll get into our first interview of the morning. Uh, looking forward to talking to Dr. Uh, Kashif Perzada out of uh, Toronto, making time for us today. We appreciate it. We're also curious to know how you feel about some of the stories that we're covering today. And, and that includes uh, fences and, and it sounds like roadblocks going up around a church just west of Edmonton. It's Grace Life Church, the church that has has brazenly defied public health orders, gathering uh, in person many hundreds of people, of course, grossly exceeding the the capacity limits, 15 percent of fire code capacity uh, over the past number of weeks, the past number of months. And and it's been interesting to hear from many of you on, on how you feel about what would be appropriate enforcement of this. I mean, I'm seeing some of you even today saying, why are members of the public paying for this fencing? I mean, assuming it's not going to be built back to the church. We don't know the details. It's going up literally as we put this episode together. But some of you are saying, wouldn't it make more sense to to cite, you know, to ticket to, to, to punish, to enforce the law on those that continue to break the law on every single person, either coming in or exiting that church? Wouldn't it make more sense to make them pay in that way? I'm curious to know how you feel about this. I mean, this is a dramatic development. I'm, uh, this church has not gone away quietly, so to speak, when it comes to how they felt as a community, how they've responded, how they've insisted on you know, religious freedom or freedom to practice or observe religion or freedom to gather. I'm not convinced that a fence going up is going to change anything. As a matter of fact, I kind of I kind of wonder, I mean, this is a message 
this is law enforcement or, or uh, you know, the health authorities here sending a message, to be clear. But what message will this congregation send back? And from which biblical passage will it be? No, I'm just kidding. Of course, we know that this is the least Christian thing that you could possibly be doing. I'm just kidding about the biblical passage that they'll cite. The watcher is tuned in this morning watching us live on YouTube says, you know, I feel like the chief medical officer of health in Alberta, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, has her has her hands tied. You know, she was effective in the state of emergency. But once that was over, the premier has obviously impeded her. I mean, I'd argue that we're still right in the middle of a state of emergency. I think it's pretty obvious that this this third wave is is here. It's upon us. And it means that that healthcare experts across the country are bracing themselves for the reality that was mid-December into January. You remember those numbers? Sam, are we ready to rock with uh, our first guest here? I think Okay, you let me. How about just give me a thumbs up when we're ready to rock here? Okay, I'm going to give you a sense of the types of emails that we're getting here to talk at ryanjesperson.com. And and by the way, we've never seen action on our inbox like we have over the past two weeks. It's a bit of a long story for those that aren't familiar with the state of Alberta politics right now, but there seems to be an integrity problem out of the premier's office with regards to whether or not Jason Kenney's being upfront about the correspondence the government is receiving from concerned constituents, whether it's the coal file, whether it's the pandemic file, whether it's the curriculum file or otherwise. And so we've asked you to CC us, talk at ryanjesperson.com on your correspondence to your elected officials, your MLAs, ministers, the premier's office. <laughs> and boy, have you ever. Uh, we've not quite seen anything like this. Somebody asked me on Twitter the other day, how many emails have you received? I said like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and, and now tack on and hundreds and hundreds more. It's unbelievable. Keep the emails coming. We can't read them all on the show, obviously, but some jump out at us. Kevin wrote a, an email to the premier and he CC'd us the subject line, your pandemic negligence. He wrote, Alberta's going back to the level of restrictions we had weeks ago, which didn't work and helped lead to the current situation. And, and with no enforcement, Premier, nothing changes. Kevin says the, the inaction, uh, the lack of decision making during this pandemic continues to be negligent, pathological, leading to unnecessary suffering and death. We're talking about human beings. And it strikes me as though elected officials are willing to sacrifice lives to maintain some sense of normalcy at their expense. Kevin says 2000 people dead so far in Alberta alone. We could have done a hard lockdown and controlled this in a couple of months instead of 54 weeks and counting constantly changing half measures that have caused confusion and complacency and have ultimately made this pandemic worse. Kevin says, it looks to me like we'll reach 2,000 preventable cases a day by May, if not more, says Kevin. You can be confident, Premier, you will not win the next election. Kevin makes it. I mean, he speaks the language that politicians will listen to. That's one email out of hundreds. And keep them coming to talk at RyanJesperson.com. As mentioned, the province of Ontario expected to announce today a stay at home order. That's where Dr. Kashef Pirzada lives, an emergency physician in Toronto uh, with academic ties to the University of Toronto, McMaster University. He's a co-founder of Conquer COVID-19, which helped supply PPE at the start of this pandemic, as well as the group Masks 
for Canada, which has been fighting for mask mandates across the country. Doctor, thanks so much for making time for us on what I know is a busy day for you. And welcome to Real Talk. Thank you, Ryan. Your uh, your social media, as I, as I mentioned to you when we asked you to join us, uh, when you tweet at Cash Prime, it's been such a valuable source of insight for people from somebody working on the front lines. Uh, I noticed just a short time ago you tweeted you didn't even think this stay at home order uh, expected to be announced by Premier Doug Ford is going to be sufficient. You say we need to do more. Can you take us into your perspective on what that would look like? So about three weeks ago at, in Toronto, we started seeing an alarming number of young people coming in. Um, I was shocked, honestly. Like I had five patients in a row in an ER shift where you usually see about 20 people that all were young people with COVID. And they worked um, in factories. They were teachers. They were daycare workers. And, you know, the stay-at-home order is not going to touch any of that. Um, I think Alberta's versions are even less uh, uh, less uh, careful than that. So all these workers are still going to be back in the factories. They're going to keep infecting each other. And, like, you know, common sense things they could do to really get this under control, they're not doing. Like, why don't they find problematic workplaces, shut them down, do rapid tests? Like, they're doing rapid tests in the nursing homes. They could do it at Amazon. Uh, companies like Sobeys and Walmart, they haven't had a single outbreak uh, in this pandemic, but Amazon and other companies are big offenders. Like you had Cargill in Alberta, right? Um, so I think it's going to be, uh, they're going to be repeating the same thing over and over again. This is the third time. It's like Groundhog Day here. We just keep going through the same cycle. They're not changing approaches and they really need to. So when you say you're seeing younger cases, I mean, can you directly attribute these? It seems to me that there's a plenty of anecdotal evidence that, that, that this, uh, these variants of concern mean that younger patients are going to be more seriously affected. It's, it's more highly contagious, et cetera, et cetera. You're seeing that right in front of you. Oh, yeah. Like they, they, most of them had the UK variant that I checked the results a few days later when it was confirmed. And yeah, it, it hit younger people a lot faster and harder. It's a big blind spot. Like we vaccinated older people, which was the right thing to do, but we missed out on the fact that these people are working close quarters in meatpacking plants, uh, stocking our boxes for Amazon, that kind of thing. And we're, we've totally missed this. And that I think they're trying to re- reprioritize here in Ontario, but I don't think any other province is doing that. But still only above age 50 or so. And the patients I saw were all in their 30s or 40s. So it's not going to help them. You know, in Alberta, I know I don't have to tell you this because you've been keeping an eye on and commenting on on provincial government action or, or inaction, as you may see fit uh, to deem it that way uh, through this past year or so. Alberta returning to stage one, it's called. And, and, and to an outsider not paying close attention to the news, you might think, oh, stage one, that's that uh, stage one is when it gets really serious. I mean, ultimately, it means that restaurants will be closed for, for in-room dining, which is, is not insignificant for their bottom line, to be sure. Patios can still be open. Retail stores can still be open to 15 percent capacity. But for for a lot of stores, that's still a lot of people. Um, you say that B.C. and Alberta are headed for disaster. Did your mind change with the return to stage one yesterday or no? Well, what, what was stage one in Alberta? It's like um, it's nothing compared to what Quebec and Ontario are doing, right? Um, I think, in, especially BC, it's bizarre. Like we saw a health um, a, uh, officer of health who was lauded in the initial parts of the can- of the pandemic, but now has like completely dropped the ball because cases are still going to rise. Like, what was gyms are closed except with a trainer? Like that's that's just ridiculous. Like. And again, they're not addressing the core issue, which is very crowded uh, workplaces. Um, No one's doing that right now in the West. Ontario is just starting right now. Um, But it's it's not going to change the way things are going to go. And even any change now takes about two to three weeks to register. So like that nightmare scenario you're thinking where, you know, a thousand cases, 2000 cases in Alberta, it's going to happen unless um, they really change their approach to things right now.
Are you keeping an eye on the dynamic? And, and again, I got to be careful how I ask this because every province is different. But but, you know, whether you, t- you reference Dr. Bonnie Henry in B.C. or Dr. Dina Hinshaw in Alberta facing some fire, including from me, quite frankly, uh, for the handling of, of some of the news or the investigation around these variants of concern and, and outbreaks in Alberta workplaces. Um, what do you make of the dynamic? Your understanding of the role of a chief medical officer of health the legal implications of it, the political implications of it. Uh, what do you make of what this role should be and how it's being carried out in some prominent Canadian provinces? So honestly, this role needs to, they need to use the science first and they need to be independent of the politics. I think the best medical officer of health in the country is uh, Dr. Strang in Nova Scotia and Dr. Lisa Barrett in Halifax. Uh, my relatives in Halifax, uh, the malls are open, the restaurants are open. They have no fear. They do their, uh, they're going about their normal lives. My father-in-law has his vaccination appointment in three weeks. He doesn't care. Like he's fine because he knows he's not going to catch it anywhere. Why haven't these officers of health copied them? Uh, why haven't politicians given the deference to good measures that these doctors did, like the Nova Scotian premiers did? Um, and that's the thing. Like each of these officers of health has to answer to a political authority. They have to keep them happy, but they have the power to speak out when they think something wrong is happening. And I feel that's not happening as much as they should. I think in future, these officers need to be more independent and need to act on their instincts, which from what we've been told in the behind the scenes that they really want to do more, but uh, they're not being prevented by the political uh, layer, unfortunately. What would you do? I mean, l- let me ask you to, 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 to walk a, a hallway or two in those shoes. Uh, would you, I mean... Well, there's, like if you're a medical officer of health that you believe there's political interference and that you're being essentially muzzled or you're being politically influenced, what do you think is the right is the correct response? Well, there's a few easy wins like um, in B.C. They could have required masks for students that would have put out that fire a lot faster. Um, you could do what Manitoba did um, as rapid testing in schools. If you look at Manitoba, uh, there's uh, school cases are hardly rising at all. There's hardly any outbreaks there. Um, so just copy the best practices. Don't be too proud to admit that you were wrong. All, every medical officer of health was wrong about masks at the beginning. And as you know, it became more obvious that you know, the Asian countries that have implemented them did better, they changed their tune. But you know, I'm an emergency doctor. We're wrong all the time. Like I see a patient in front of me, I get a test result back. I have to change my assumptions because what I thought they had wasn't the case. Same thing with other fields, like you need to be able to change your assumptions when new stuff comes in, when someone is doing better than you, when another place is doing better, just be humble and say, I was wrong. Let's do it a different way now. Doctor, what's going on at your hospital right now? Is you, I mean, it, my understanding is that you're, the hospital's taking steps to, to, to beef up ICU capabilities. Oh, gosh. So I got an email yesterday that uh, I'm, we're all being drafted to work in the ICU. Um, it's a little like, honestly, like a year ago when they asked us the same thing, like I thought it was going to be like my death warrant because um, no one knew how trans, uh, transmissible this was. But now that most of us have been vaccinated, I'm actually going to volunteer to go. Um, so, yeah, we're being drafted to work in the ICU. They're expanding it as quickly as possible. And everything is COVID. There's no other patients coming in right now. It's COVID, COVID, COVID. The hallways are full. Everyone's on oxygen. Um, I work in uh, in the city of like city of Toronto and in the suburbs, and it's it's basically pandemonium right now. Um, it's it's going to be like this for the next two to three weeks until these measures take hold. But it's gonna, I think, hopefully, move people to realize that there's a better way. Hopefully, like we don't have to go through this over and over again. You know, with vaccinations, uh, weather, summer weather's coming. Schools out now. 
um, at least in some parts of Ontario, hopefully the rest, that we can smash these numbers down as low as possible and then try to be more like Nova Scotia, hopefully, and live free again. Doctor, this uh, the idea of long COVID, not the idea of it, the reality of it uh, is something that that maybe we're not talking about as much because it it still hasn't happened yet for a lot of people. But I know that this is something that's been concerning you. You've been vocal about it, including with kids. Uh, Can you give us a couple of quick pointers that you think everybody should be aware of in the context of long COVID? So it's, it's something that's not talked about enough. So about 10 to 15% of people, that's a conservative number, who've had COVID can have long-term symptoms. So that could be you're tired all the time, walking up a flight of stairs will wind you, uh, you have a brain fog, you just can't concentrate. It's uh, people from the beginning of the pandemic still have symptoms now. So the indication is that it might be a lifelong issue. About a third of people who get vaccinated seem to get better. So it could be an issue where the virus is still in your body somehow. But it's debilitating. We've seen conditions like this before. Like part of my practice is in chronic pain. I see patients with conditions called fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome. Why these people get them is mysterious. No one knows. And it's a lifelong thing and it's a lifelong disability. So I can't imagine a future where 10 to 15% of all Canadians are disabled by something like this. And I can't even imagine a future where 10 to 15% of all children, because they get this as well. And that's what really makes me worried is that we have a golden opportunity to smash this COVID thing down this summer. Um, but when we open up schools in September, uh, there's no vaccine for kids. Uh, there'll probably be one for age 12 and above by September, but not for kids below that. So we're going to have a fourth wave or a fifth wave in schools until all of the kids are vaccinated. So that's why I think, you know, I've been very vocal about this is that we, we don't want 10% of our kids to be disabled. That's just a disaster for us as Canadians. And we have to do everything we can to get this under control. And these half measures done by, you know, the Alberta Premier, the Ontario Premier, the BC uh, government, it's not going to work. We have to do better than this. We have to aim better than this. So in other words, this this whole thing's not over. I mean, we're not done until everybody's vaccinated. You're, You're talking kids as well. I mean, is that an obvious statement? Yes, um, we can't reach herd immunity without kids. They're, you know, 20, 30% of the population. Um, you know, we know maybe 70, 80% of Canadians will get the vaccine. That only brings us to 50, 60%. So we need them. Like, you know, uh, Health Canada, Government of Canada needs to accelerate like trials to make sure that the vaccines are safe for all children. That's a thing they can do right now. Um, I, we don't, like, there's not much visibility on what uh, Moderna or Pfizer are doing, what their timeline is to get their vaccines. But if it's safe uh, up till 12, it will probably be safe for younger. But, you know, you don't want to reduce uh, confidence in vaccines by rushing anything. But there's room to really get this going because otherwise the prospect is 10% of our kids will have some kind of disability. God forbid. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Dr. Kashef Pirzada, uh, so grateful. I mean, I, I, it's so funny. I always have mixed feelings when I have an opportunity to talk to somebody like you because it's like you're you're educating Canadians. This is so important. We know everybody's going to be sharing this podcast, but at the same time, we need to let you get the hell back to the ER. So thank you so much for this. Thank you for your ongoing advocacy with Masks for Canada and uh, with Conquer COVID-19 as well. And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for having me on, Ryan. Thank you. you bet. Uh, the, again, that's Dr. Kashef Pirzada. Uh, academic ties he has to the University of Toronto, McMaster University, and I encourage you to give him a follow on Twitter. So there you have it. Not enough. That from the ER doc, um, that from uh, an, an outspoken advocate of pretty serious measures, as you heard, as you picked up on there, 
And um, we'll be curious to see what you make of that. In our ongoing coverage of a story that's developing as we're doing this show live on this Wednesday morning, um, I can let you know that the CBC's Janice Johnson is reporting that the RCMP uh, in Alberta have confirmed that they are assisting Alberta Health Services uh, on site at Grace Life Church just west of Edmonton where roadblocks and fences are going up. The RCMP saying they're assisting AHS as they affect a closure under Section 62.1 of the Alberta Public Health Act. Well, what's that? Uh, section 62.1 reads where after an inspection, the executive officer has reasonable and probable grounds to believe that a nuisance exists in or on the public or private place that was the subject of the inspection or that the place of the owner of it or any other person is in contravention of the Public Health Act, the Alberta Public Health Act or regulations, the executive officer may issue a written order in accordance with this section. That's clearly what has happened. And police there are on site. Now, what does this mean? We'll see. But I think optically, it was getting more and more difficult. I mean, this government is in a tough position, the Alberta provincial government. Jason Kenney's in a tough position on this because you're talking about members of the general public that are seeing a spike in cases, including variant cases. You have the chief medical officer of health, which is pleading with people to, along with the premier, to show personal responsibility when it comes to taking proactive measures to flattening this curve and then brazen defiance of that. On the flip side, this is being spun by a lot of groups, including the, the, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms as 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 essentially contravening people's inherent right to gather, to practice their religion, to worship, so to speak. It's being seen as an attack on people's faith and what to people of faith is more important than their faith. The answer is nothing. And so Jason Kenney's in a bit of a pickle on this because these, these are his grassroots. This is his base. When Jason Kenney loses the rural areas and the religious folks, he's in serious trouble. So this is a significant development this morning, and I suspect that among the members of the general public, the take on this will be, it's about time. We're going to get to headlines, and then we'll talk to uh, a former Alberta Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Talbot, coming up in just a couple of moments. Dr. James Talbot wanted to remind you that Alberta Blue Cross knows that running a small business is not a nine-to-five job, and neither is taking care of your employees and that's where a group benefit plan from Alberta Blue Cross can help with digital tools that do the heavy lifting for you from start to finish. Your employees can enroll and manage their benefits digitally anywhere on any device. And as plan administrator, you can oversee your entire account all in real time, all within your budget. Learn how Alberta Blue Cross makes managing your health and dental life and disability coverage simple and affordable at abbluecross.ca. Wanted to give a shout out to the team at McBain Camera and remind you that they've been serving Alberta's photography community since the late 1940s with six convenient Alberta locations ready to serve you. Plus, of course, online at McBainCamera.com. If you have a unique photo, why not put it in a unique frame? They can place your favorite prints in a beautiful custom frame that'll add an extra flair to your home, your office, maybe even a recording studio. 
You can head down to the McMain store nearest to you or check them out online nice to see there. what frame best suits your image. What's or maybe that? a recording studio. Oh. Just, oh. Oh, yeah. oh, I hadn't noticed, Sam. Yeah. Oh, 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 thank you. <laughs> <laughs> they also offer many other high-quality print options, including gallery wraps, metal prints, plaque mounting, and more. Again, at McBainCamera.com. Have you ever seen, have you ever done up a metal print? I've never done a metal print. Like, my take on this ad was going to be more people should frame their photos. Not a lot of people actually print and frame their photos. But I have never personally had created or owned a metal print, and I've always found them so cool. I'm looking for the right photo to do it with. Yeah, we did a, we, we have a photo. It's like a, a, a black and white photo from our wedding. Mm. And when you put it on the metal frame, the blacks and the whites and the, oh, I that's mean, so it, cool. it just, yeah. it's hard to describe what it brings out, but it's super cool. And it looks really striking hanging on the wall. Also a big shout out to the team at Local Waste. We don't have to tell you they love talking trash. Hell, they sponsor probably our most popular five minutes of the entire week. That's Trash Talk as we wrap up our Friday shows. Um, you can send us your, your rants, to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure in the subject line, especially now with the amount of emails we're receiving, make sure you put trash talk in the subject line. Trash talk is brought to you, of course, by Local Waste more than 25 years. They've been in the waste management game. They can help you with solutions, garbage, recycling, whether it's a business big or small, they want to fight for your business and you can give them a call today or check them out online at localwaste.ca. Do we have Dr. Talbot ready to rock and roll? We don't. Okay, no problem. He gives me some time. Okay, he's going to be joining us in just a little bit. Sam, just give me a heads up when he's ready to rock. Dr. James Talbot is going to join us. Um, Three options, he says. Um, He says, if if you disagree with government as a chief medical officer of health, and and again, we're not making, you know, I'm, I'm not implying here, I guess in a way I am. But I'm not implying directly. I'm not saying directly that Alberta's existing current chief medical officer of health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, disagrees with government. I don't know if she does or doesn't. But I do know that a lot of people feel like she's not doing what her role calls for and that she could be doing more. I've been hearing a lot from physicians. I told you out of the gates on the show this morning, people, people that are saying, hey, hey, don't say my name. But they're emailing me and saying, This is what we believe the chief medical officer of health needs to do. We're getting messages from others, including those in the medical community that are saying, please, please, please don't tread on Dr. Hinshaw. Please go easy on her. Please don't imply that she's not doing her job. She's working so hard behind the scenes, you know, locking horns potentially with the premier's office fighting for what she believes to be the best way to manage this third wave or for that matter, the last 13 months or so with this pandemic. Dr. Jim Talbot's done the job before, and he says that it involves this, a CBC report from back in November, walking a political tightrope. He says your your, your responsibility ultimately is to provide recommendations to the minister and ultimately to the government. So to the health minister, then to the government. And then it's the responsibility of the health minister, in Alberta's case, Tyler Shandro, and the government to decide what to do with those recommendations. So if you disagree, if you're locking horns as the province's top doc, three options. The first, you could resign. The second, you can differ publicly with government, but it may be a a short-lived approach. You'd probably be fired. You'd probably be relieved of your duties. And the third is that you can continue to work behind the scenes to get the best possible decisions you can. So we're going to ask the doctor to dig into that. Now, there are political implications to all of this. Uh, The perception that the Alberta government could be doing more the perception by some people that the Alberta government is doing too much, the perception that the federal government has not done enough, including on vaccines, 
Vaccines is, is what we asked you about in our most recent question of the week at ryanjesperson.com. This is where you can find them. And we wanted to dig into this, some really interesting data, uh, really interesting results on what you told us about how you're feeling about the vaccines right now. Sam, why don't we take a quick look at some, at some of the, the uh, graphics that the team at Y Station provided for us here. Take a look. These are, these are of, of the, the Real Talk audience members that completed this. A total of 828 surveys completed uh, through my Twitter, through RyanJesperson.com, and then, of course, through the Y Station panel. And here's what you told us. When it comes to those of you that plan on getting the vaccine, 97% said you plan on getting it. But of the 54% of listeners who would like to choose their vaccine, in other words, which one would you like to get? Only 1% would choose the AstraZeneca vaccine. So there are real concerns around the AstraZeneca vaccine. 1% of you would choose it of the 54% that said you'd like to choose. So the vaccine's very popular. It's interesting to see that that Amid reports last year that there were large portions of the population that would not get a vaccine. That's what people were saying over the past number of months. These results suggest that those attitudes may have changed. 97% of you say that you intend on getting it. In general, most of you, a majority of you said that you would take any vaccine offered to you. And this has been the advice of, of, of health professional after health professional on the show. There seems to be a lot of confusion around the rollout. Sam, let's take a look at that one. I think, it, what was it, 54%? There was another statistic that really jumped out at me. There's a perception that the rules keep changing, that there's contradictory information floating around. Look at this, 47% of those of you that responded to our question of the week, 47%, almost half. You told us you're not clear when you're eligible to be vaccinated. There's a sense that the overall deployment is not particularly well executed. Can we take a look at Patty Hyde's tweets? I know I'm all over the map on this, but it, it kind of comes together. This is the federal health minister, obviously the, the liberal health minister, Patty Hyde, with an interesting tweet a couple of days ago, a series, a thread, tweets the health minister, as of today, we've delivered 10 million COVID-19 vaccines across Canada. Here's how we're working with provinces and territories to protect communities. And she goes on and she gives specifics with regards to how many vaccinations have been administered in each province and how many each province has received so here tweets health minister Haidu a couple of days ago alberta you know this is as of monday had received a million seventy eight thousand two hundred fifteen vaccines they've administered seven hundred seven thousand four hundred eighty two and then a link to the website now learn how to get your shot like a public health message but sam i don't know about you i get the sense there's a little more to that it's a public health message. Here's the link to click in each province with regards to where to get your vaccine. And I hate to be super cynical, but to me, it's 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 a not so subtle way of the federal government saying, hey, listen, we've sent the provinces more vaccines than they've administered supply. This is the federal government's line on this. Supply is not the issue. Is that it's what you picked up? on? Yeah, it's a bit of a clapback, I would say, by by Minister Haidu. And, and I think that we've seen that tone from the federal government. I think justifiably, quite frankly, through a lot of this is we have, I mean, particularly here in Alberta, but it certainly exists elsewhere in the country. We have a premier who believes it's his job to oppose the federal government at every step, no matter what, no matter what case. And 
it protects the brand of the UCP to continuously have an adversarial relationship with Ottawa. So in in a way, it's like we've seen this come out very kind of tactfully from federal government officials, basically saying there's not a supply issue. We're sending you lots of stuff. There's not a testing issue. We're sending you lots of testing. We're not like it's it's little drips that bring out, you know, all the all the unspent money that was on the table, quite frankly, for example, for Alberta, because they wouldn't put their own cash up against it. So it's yeah, we've seen this tone before. It doesn't surprise me. But, you know, at the same time, it's just like there's a real discrepancy between what we've been sent and what we've administered. Yeah. I, I saw Premier Doug Ford last night clapping back to the clapback, <laughs> saying, hang on a second. <laughs> I got to say, I mean, I know that Doug Ford isn't everybody's cup of tea, to, to put it lightly. I, I get that. I get that Doug Ford's not everybody's cup of tea, but I, there's a certain way of, of how he communicates that resonates with me. And I've said this before on the show. Like he said, he said last night, and I'm paraphrasing, but but in his kind of delivery, he said, you know, he says, we're, you know, we're moving more, more of the vaccination efforts to to Toronto and Peel, and I think it was Yorkton or somewhere somewhere else. Where, and, and he goes, because, you know, like if there's a blazing inferno, that's where you got to turn the hoses. And I thought it's just kind of like this everyman way of explaining the thinking. And so anyway, Doug Ford, he was annoyed with the federal health minister. He was annoyed with the liberal health minister, Patty Haidu. He said, hang on a second. He said, these numbers you're tweeting out about the number of vaccinations. He says, he says, we just got a whole bunch of those, like thousands and thousands of those in our freezers hours ago. In other words, I think he felt or he was implying that it was somewhat unfair that the government, the federal government was grandstanding with big numbers that they'd sent along. He said, we can't admit. He said, we just got these a few hours ago. So there's going to be many sides to this as the provinces and the feds continue, I think, to try to try to come across like they're not politicizing the pandemic while at the same time to, to to prevent themselves from losing as many political points as possible. I think Doug Ford has the same appeal that Ralph Klein had. He's very folksy when he speaks. He's very good at being a man of the people. Whether he is or not is quite questionable. And you can see that come out in his policies and you can see that it come out in how he treats the media. And, you know, I mean, Doug Ford has a lot of just under the surface, under this veil of the nice, kind Doug Ford that's protecting you during the pandemic still has a lot of the, you know, the the original, the OG Doug Ford just kind of sitting under the surface there. So, but I mean, the other thing that I will say, and, and I don't want to by any means come across as a, as a mouthpiece for the federal government, that's not what I'm trying to do here, but they've more or less been right about everything they've said. The federal government has said, we don't have weekly targets, we don't have monthly targets, we have quarterly targets, we're procuring from this, 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 and this source, and, you know, they're going to roll in slowly and then really ramp up. That was kind of always the plan that we were told. So, I mean, I get that for a lot of people's comfort and I get for a lot of people's livelihoods that this just isn't fast enough, but at the same time, compared to the provincial government, I can't actually cite a case where the federal government has outright lied to us. Well, I, I mean, I guess we don't know. That's true. We, <laughs> we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. And, and I hate to be a cynic there, but in, in years and years of political coverage and commentary, you never you, you don't always know when you're being lied to. Um, back to our survey results, a full 75 percent of respondents. This is what I, I found. In, I mean, I found about a million things interesting with these results, but 75 percent of respondents, three out of four um, said that they would avoid social functions or work functions with somebody who is unvaccinated. I don't know if that's surprising or not, but three out of four said that that would impact whether or not they would attend a work function, a social function or otherwise. 
You so know, that, that's come up in my own life. And I will say because Kelly and I's wedding was supposed to be about two months ago. It was supposed to be in early February this year. And we postponed it a year. So it's now going to be in February 2022. And we're grappling with some of the same discussions. Be like, what if somebody is on our invite list that that isn't vaccinated and refuses to be vaccinated? Like, you know, I have to weigh the... The interests of my guests against, quite frankly, the interests of my, you know, mid-90s grandparents, whom I, I much would rather be protecting in that situation. Yeah. When it comes to hesitation around the vaccine, this is something that we've talked about. There's a difference be- between vaccine hesitancy and being an anti-vaxxer, right? And we've talked about this many times on this show. And we've and 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 I'm grateful that the team at Y Station put this into our question of the week. When asked, are you having any hesitations around getting a COVID-19 vaccine? 14% of you said, yeah, I, I have a few concerns. 86% said, no, give me that sweet life-giving vax. Written like only Chris Henderson can write. But But for those that were hesitant, here's what you told us. Here's what's making you hesitant. One one audience member said the rush is is just to get one, but but for me, I got to consider what's really best for me. Another said I'm unsure. Many said I'm unsure about the side effects. Uh, Chris Henderson, chief strategist at Y Station, says concerns about side effects made up the majority of hesitations around the vaccine. Another said AstraZeneca. The information around it specifically seems to change almost daily. Very confusing. I don't blame that person. Another said, I'm worried the time in between shots is too long and it's unclear whether it's against the instructions of the manufacturer. Another said the latest news about pausing the AstraZeneca vaccine in relation to blood clots makes me hesitant. Otherwise, I am confident in vaccine science as a whole. Another said, I have a lack of understanding around long term consequences. However, it's not enough to scare me away. I will get mine when it's my turn. Another said the, the risks of getting COVID are clearly higher than the risks of the vaccine, in my opinion. More time will tell uh, more time will tell us about these risks. I'm going to get it. I just have more questions than answers at this point. I'm not anti-vaccine by any means. I just look forward to more solid information. That sounds like a pretty reasonable take to me. So. As mentioned, if if you want to have a chance to sift through or to go through these top line reports, they're oftentimes 14, 15, 16 pages of, of, of fantastic curated scientific data. Um, you can join our team of patrons. These, these are the folks that make a monthly commitment to the show. They help us roll out very cool stuff and add to our offerings. We're going to be growing our team this month. That's thanks to our Patreon subscribers. And each and every week, typically it's on a Sunday It was a Wednesday morning this week because of the short week, but you'll receive the full top line report in your email inbox and you can go through it at your leisure. Uh, We're uh, I'm assuming Dr. Talbot's not here ready to go. Do we have the mayor on the line yet? Okay, mayor's ready to go. We'll get to him in just a second. Uh, The mayor of the town of Edson's uh, kind enough to join us. And we're so we'll circle back with Dr. Talbot today. Hopefully get him on the show tomorrow. Uh, Let me take a quick second to remind you that the team at Friesen Brothers has been serving Alberta communities and proudly partnering with Alberta producers for decades. Friesen Brothers just opening their 15th grocery store, not any grocery store. Good grief. Have you ever, have you seen, I, a buddy, Guy, a, a listener by the name of Guy chimed in last week. He said, my wife and I went to Friesen Brothers because we heard about it on the show. He, it blew his mind. Whether it's the, the Alberta sourdough 
their famous Alberta milled flour sourdough. Whether it's Alberta honey, they've got an amazing display set up in their new South Edmonton store. Or, of course, the Alberta beef, pork, chicken, turkey that they've been so proudly making available for years and years and years. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Encourage you to check them out. The team at Park Power, a proud sponsor of Real Talk. They power our Real Talk RJ hashtag. And they want your business when it comes to electricity, natural gas, and internet. They've been in the game for coming up on a decade, and they've been proudly supporting the communities in which they live and work. They profit share, they support the nonprofits, and they're also proud to employ people that are going to be taking your call, customer service or otherwise, from right in the same area you're calling from. They understand your concerns. They're the local solution to electricity, natural gas, and internet. If you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK at parkpower.ca, they're going to give you 70 bucks off your first bill. That's 70 bucks off your first bill at parkpower.ca. All right, let's get into this. This is a story that was obviously, it goes without saying, making news over the weekend. Alberta's chief medical officer of health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, indicating that a serious outbreak of COVID cases, the variants of concern, was impacting several Alberta communities. But here's the thing. The Alberta communities had not been notified. In fact, some community members, including political leaders, were finding out from either corporate news releases or news reports from as far away as Newfoundland. Kevin Zahara is the mayor of the town of Edson, kind enough to make time for us on this Wednesday morning. Your worship, welcome to Real Talk. I feel like I hit the big time today, Ryan. <laughs> well, it's great to be with you. We appreciate that. And, I, and I've been looking forward to connecting uh, with you, Mayor. Uh, obviously, we wish it was under different circumstances. I know that you've got some really cool stuff going on. And as a matter of fact, I want to make some time to talk about biking. Yeah, that's right. Biking. But but we won't lead off with that today. Uh, why don't we talk about the last number of days? Obviously, uh, residents in the town of Edson, including you, pretty concerned about the entire way that this is rolling out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've seen the tweet uh, that came out on on Saturday, and I've been fairly critical of that, uh, announcing that there's a serious outbreak of the P1 variant, not including where that's happening, uh, was uh, quite frankly a little bit disturbing to me. Um, so that information came out on Saturday, and the instant thought was it's in another community because we've seen some growth in cases in some smaller areas, such as my hometown of Athabasca. So. Uh, we waited uh, patiently to see what was going on. And then uh, Monday rolls around and I find out in a news report that it's actually in my community. Uh, and that notification did not come from Alberta Health Services. It actually was through a letter uh, that was sent from AHS to the company in question. And the company uh, made that uh, information public. And I give them kudos for being transparent about the situation. Um, but I was very concerned. I was quite upset over what occurred there. So, Mayor, what would have changed? I mean, how would you have like, can, can I point out, by the way, I mean, you've, 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 you're currently the mayor, but you've spent 11 years, more than a decade in municipal governance. Um, you spent a lot of years, like 14 years working in media and radio broadcasting. You're, you're no stranger to the idea of how information is shared. Hell, you've served, uh, I have the position correct, I think you were a press secretary for a former provincial government minister, a conservative government minister, correct? I mean, you've seen this from a number of different angles. How do you believe, what's your informed opinion on how this should be handled? 
Well, I think when you're dealing with something like the pandemic or any emergency, the public has a right to know what's going on in their communities. Uh, and I kind of look at this like a wildfire or a flood. Uh, if, if a dam breaks and there's a flood of water coming towards you, you don't say, hey, we're not going to tell you where it's happening. Stay tuned Monday. You go out there and you let the people know what's happening and make sure that they have the information they need. In absence of that, uh, there is a vacuum and then rumors start happening. Uh, misinformation gets community, uh, communicated as well as it lowers the confidence that Albertans will have in, in the COVID response. Right now, we are fighting a huge battle in uh, people just being fatigued with COVID and uh, people are not trusting that uh, decisions are being made in their best interest. If you provide that data, you provide that information, people will have a lot more confidence. Uh, we're in a small community of 8,400 people. Um, and of course, uh, most of the information I get is from on the ground, you know, talking to different connections. It's not coming from Alberta Health Services, but when people ask, well, is this actually true? Half the time, I don't know if it is or it isn't because Alberta Health Services hasn't communicated that information to us. So we certainly shared our concerns with Dr. Hinshaw yesterday. They finally reached out yesterday morning. We set up an interview or sorry, a meeting uh, with uh, with them and uh, other municipalities that were impacted to say, hey, look, it was simple and easy to just to contact us on the weekend saying we've detected the P1 variant. We don't believe that there's a concern in your community as we've had intensive contact tracing. And here's the steps and here's what we are doing to mitigate the risk. That didn't happen on Saturday. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have that conversation until late on Monday. Uh, and uh, certainly I shared that concern and hopefully we see some improvements in the future. Uh, this is a large province. And when you're talking about health zones, those health zones are larger than some countries. Um, so what happens in high in high level has really no impact in a community, say, say Westlock or Barhead or Edson. Um, so we, we really need some of that local information and we can help communicate and uh, message our public as well. Uh, this was a long weekend. Unfortunately, people um, are fatigued and they may not be following the, the guidelines in place. If we knew that the P1 variant was here, we've been able to communicate that. Maybe some folks would have made a different decision, maybe not having those uh, Easter gatherings. Yeah, I, I'm a... Uh... I, I always feel like I'm stating the obvious when I point this out, but it, 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 it is undeniable to me that there are parallel storylines right now, Mayor. On one hand, there's there's this third wave. I mean, we've just talked to an ER doc in Toronto who says that they're 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 being headhunted. They're being pulled. Doctors are being pulled into the ICU. They're not ICU docs, but they're being essentially headhunted to be in there. Everybody's bracing themselves. And, uh, and 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 it's undeniable that the cases are rising, that the variants of concern are a serious factor here that, 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 you know, Alberta returns to stage one, Ontario going to a stay at home order. I, you get the point on the flip side. People are going, I'm sick of it. I've had enough. I'm sick and tired. And 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 I'm going to get vaccinated soon or or the people I care about have already been vaccinated. And so I'm I'm going to go to that secret Easter dinner or I'm going to go to there. I'm going to have the friends over. We're going to shoot pool in the basement. How are you reconciling that? I mean, what are you seeing in Edson? What are people telling you? How are you wrapping your mind around it? You know, uh, it's it's really difficult. And, and I have to make clear that I don't think there's any easy decisions in this. And uh, no matter what the government does or Alberta Health Services does, somebody's going to be unhappy. Yeah. Uh, but people are tired. Um, and I there's, there's a lot of mental health issues out there. There's a lot of stress. Uh, this is over a year. That's a huge amount of time. So I certainly understand when people say, you know what, I'm going to have a few friends over or I'm going to have that Easter uh, dinner 
because there's still a feeling that this is not a high risk to me until it actually is. Um, so there's a bit of a disconnect there. So uh, I understand that it's it's the larger gatherings that really concern me where people are, uh, quite frankly, just uh, breaking the rules and, and basically telling the government, F you, we're not going to do this. Uh, this. The smaller gatherings where people are, are kind of in a situation where they just need some some connection with their families or their friends. I, I understand that. Uh, but I, I also believe that, you know, we're close to the end of this thing. We just got to hold the course and try to do what we can do to prevent the spread. Mayor, a developing story as we've been doing the show this morning, uh, RCMP confirming they're, they're assisting Alberta Health Services in putting roadblocks and fences up around a church, Grace Life Church outside Edmonton, west of Edmonton, um, you know, that, that's obviously been operating at full capacity in defiance of, of public health orders. Have you encountered anything comparable uh, in your town? Have, have, have you seen anything that's, that's provided some, let me not say provided, necessitated um, some, some judgment calls and in, in how orders are enforced or, or to what role the mayor's office uh, partners with maybe health authorities to address any sort of brazen, um, you know, defiance of public health orders, seeing anything like that? Uh, today, we haven't seen a huge issue regarding that. Uh, most people have been fairly respective and compliant. Uh, masking is probably the, the biggest complaint that we receive, and we try to work with uh, those individuals through education. Um, we did have a masking bylaw before the provincial government uh, instituted one, and, you know, there was quite a bunch of pushback against that, but most people complied. Uh, we haven't issued any tickets Um so overall, it's been fairly good. Lately, there's been more and more uh, non-mask compliance because we were at zero cases just here a few weeks ago. So certainly people uh, started to let their guards down. But I think uh, you touch on a very important point. Uh, for those that are trying to do the right things during this, and they see uh, the mockery that Grace Life has uh, uh, provided uh, to this situation and don't see any enforcement happening. Um, it, it really puts into question, you know, why are we doing these things and what's the purpose of restrictions if you're not going to enforce it? Uh, you're relying on uh, health inspectors. I can tell you that uh, here in our region, uh, we have right now one health inspector between three communities. So there is no way they can go around and enforce these things. Uh, they are not provided with uh, the resources from, from Alberta Health Services. Um, and it seems like even if charges are laid, the Crown just goes and doesn't want to pursue the charges, which I think is actually a, a quite a disservice because we need some of the stuff tested in court to see if it is constitutional. Um, and I think maybe there's a fear that it may not be. Um, so they're just not going to proceed with charges. And I don't think that's right. I think we need some case law around these things. So the next time it happens, we know exactly what the rules are. Um, and I certainly understand uh, certainly business points of view on why they don't want to uh, shut down. Uh, these are people's lives and livelihoods. Um, and it's really, really difficult to, to square that, especially if you have been following all the rules that have been in place. Yeah, the whole business thing. We haven't, we haven't even really got into that angle today. Um, I know for so many business owners, they, you know, they've been saying we fought like hell to keep our heads above water through the winter or thought maybe we could get to the spring. And now with with these, you know, this return to stage one in Alberta or some of the other realities that people are seeing the stay at home order in Ontario, wherever else we take a look, people are saying, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to make this happen. Now, governments are stepping up, provincial and federal governments, and, and in some cases to the chagrin of of business advocacy groups. <clears throat> We're hearing from some business advocacy groups that are saying, let business figure it out. I mean, a mayoral 
candidate. I'm not sure if you heard this just this morning. Uh, Cheryl Watson, maybe she hasn't announced it yet, but she wants to be mayor in Edmonton. Uh, she's going to announce a plan. She's going to call on the city of Edmonton to to essentially close 104th Street, that that promenade uh, for several blocks uh, to vehicular traffic and to allow for more outdoor gathering space where where houses of hospitality, where restaurants or bars could either rent space or set up outside their existing brick and mortar and and allow people to gather and generate some revenue, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the obvious point that has to be considered here is the timing of that. It's got to be a delicate call on that city, right? I mean, and I think other cities across Canada will pay attention to see if that might work. But as we're announcing the arrival, the reality of a third wave at the same time to, to come across as potentially promoting, let me not say the word parties, but significant outdoor gatherings, that's got to be done uh, with a certain delicacy. It, it, it reiterates what we hear time and time again, which, which you've pointed out, is that none of this is easy. There's no clear cut solution that every single person, whether it's an ICU doctor or a restaurant owner or a teacher or somebody else, is all going to see eye to eye on. I mean, it's virtually impossible. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. And of course, uh, we see a huge polarization uh, on this issue. Um, you know, I'm, I've I've worked for the former PC government, and it's interesting. Uh, I get some of the. The trolls on Twitter tweeting me that uh, you serves you right for voting UCP. Like it's like, I how do you know who I voted for? Because I actually didn't vote for the UCP. And then the next tweet is, "You're nothing but a socialist." Um, and uh, you know, so it's like uh, we have this huge polarization and partisanship, uh, which is not helpful to the situation. We just need to try to make uh, the right choices. And I think uh, it comes down back to the basics: wearing your masks. Uh, not having those social gatherings um, and staying home if you're sick and keeping your distance. If everybody, if every single person did those things, we wouldn't see restaurant closures. But when you walk into a restaurant, you look at a table, you know, they're not from the same household. Um, and then you see people going out and they're sniffling and they're coughing. Uh, it's no wonder why we see the, the surge in cases. And then people say, Hey, the restrictions are not working. No, they're, they would be working, but people are not adhering to the rules and having those house parties. And, you know, uh, we're a year into this thing, and there's still people that don't understand that you could be passing along this virus without even showing symptoms. They're like, uh, so there's, uh, it, it's been very frustrating. I'm just hopeful that we start getting shots in arms. Uh, uh, vaccinations are rolling out here in our community. I know people have been trying to get booked uh, the last couple of days and there hasn't been vaccinations available locally. Uh, I don't know if it's because of demand. Once again, Alberta Health Services is not providing local details. Um, but uh, hopefully in a three to six weeks from now, we're going to be in a much uh, better situation. Uh, I'm one of those people that want to keep things open. Uh, but I understand the need for for what the government is doing now because of the surging cases. Yeah, there, there's so much woulda, coulda, shoulda to this as yeah. well. And people are saying, you know, well, we should have just locked, you know, months ago, I read an, an email from an audience member, Kevin, earlier that says we should have just locked down meaningfully months ago and all this would be done. But then, Mayor, I look at the the, 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 the story that involves your community in Edson, and, and it's it's a, it's it's someone that, that contacted this variant strain as, as a result as a result of travel. I mean, there's 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 work travel. There's there's people that are traveling interprovincially. That's a reality. Whether or not Alberta had locked down in my understanding of this story would not have prevented 
the transmission and the spread of this variant case. So, I mean, there's so many things that need to be considered here. Um, you know, and I mean, ultimately, I guess we're going to look back on this period of time and 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 time will tell what was effective or what wasn't. I, I saw a comment from uh, one of the few Real Talk audience members that answered our question of the week and, and, and said and answered why they weren't going to get vaccinated. And it was like between three and four percent of the respondents. So it's a relatively low number. This audience is pretty pro vax. Um, but the comment was along the lines of, isn't it weird that there's like no instances of the flu right now. There's only COVID-19. And I, it, it sort of struck me like you're, you're dunking on yourself a little bit. The reason why we're not seeing instances of the flu is because people are wearing masks and staying distanced and sanitizing their hands and not going out if they're sick. And the, the hyper-contagious coronavirus and these variant strains are a reality but for all you know you're right cases of the flu are down it's behavioral change it's proving that the measures can be effective and and i hope that that message gets out before we thank you for your time i I know that you've got a town to run and i know that you've got a lot of stuff on your desk let me ask you about this bike skills park because i know that people getting outside i was serious i want to hear about it um people are going to be looking for opportunities to get outside to recreate, to get fresh air, to get their yayas out, as we say to our little guy. Uh, but they're going to have to, of course, do it under the second straight summer with this pandemic as a reality. How does this play into it, this park? Well, uh, you know, Edison is on the way to Jasper, so a lot of people just cruise on through. Uh, but we have a brand new eight-acre uh, skills bike park uh, that has been created uh, through uh, hard work by a huge amount of volunteers and businesses, uh, the Edson Cycling Association. It is absolutely amazing. We have uh, last year it opened up fully and uh, the amount of responses that we received from cyclists from Edmonton and Calgary uh, traveling through their heading to BC that they're they're not going to go there anymore because they have this uh, wonderful opportunity just two hours west of Edmonton. Uh, we also have a huge amount of trails out of out, out at Wilmore Park. So uh, we certainly encourage people to visit our community. Uh, of course, adhering to the uh, the guidelines in place and the protocols. Uh, but our our Skills Bike Park is absolutely fantastic. Be sure to check it out. Uh, our friends and neighbors in Hinton also have one and. Uh, our neighbors in Yellowhead County have a number of pump tracks, so you can actually spend a good weekend here uh, enjoying uh, just some awesome opportunities for biking and cycling. And of course, we have all sorts of other opportunities uh, with our Galloway Station Museum. Unfortunately, with the restrictions, uh, they may not be able to uh, be open all the time, but uh, uh, there's so much to do out here in Western Alberta. Uh, you don't have to go to Jasper. You don't have to go to Banff. You can uh, travel a little less further and, and come experience some of the outdoor lifestyle that we have here in Edson and Yellowhead County. Okay, Mayor. So, yeah, they're undeniably your your neighbors in Hinton. But are they really your friends? That's what I'll say publicly. Listen. Yeah, yeah that's what if, I thought. If so- if somebody's attacking Hinton, Edson's right there to help them out. But uh, we also have our, our competitiveness between our two two, two communities. So um, we uh, we certainly support each other, but we we take a, a competitive stance from time to time. Yeah, I've heard I've heard rumors uh, of of you know throwdowns at the, the hockey rinks and the ball diamonds, and I, and I'm not sure I believe that they're always your friends in Hinton. But but both two 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 don't don't get me wrong, two wonderful towns packed with incredible people. Uh, let me be very clear on that. 
and two mayors that both work together in uh, radio broadcasting at the same time. So it's uh, quite an interesting. See, hey, Ryan, you could be the mayor of Edmonton. Yeah, well, geez, don't get me started on that. It's it's uh, <laughs> quite a horse race uh, shaping up here at Edmonton. Hey, Mayor, thanks so much for making time for us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. That's Mayor Kevin Zara uh, doing an awesome job in the town of Edson. We appreciate his availability. As mentioned, a former press secretary for a previous Alberta uh, conservative government and uh, and a longtime radio broadcaster as well. We're going to get to some of the emails you're sending us. Plus, Susan Wright is going to join us in just a moment. If you don't read her blog at SusanOnTheSoapbox.com, what are you even doing? Sam inadvertently showing my email inbox. Sam, keep me off the full screen. I am so sorry. You when pulled I need, up, you when pulled I want up her the blog screen, and I wanted I'll to tease ask it. for the full okay. screen. I have many private things here going on on my computer. Uh, we, have, we, have, we, have, we have many sources that are providing us with information. Of course, I kid, but in all seriousness, Nancy and Deanna took the time this morning to write us a letter out of St. Albert. As a matter of fact, let me be very clear. Nancy and Deanna did not co-author this to us. They just cc'd it to us. But a half hour ago, they sent it to Alberta's premier. Then it says, Mr. Premier and Minister Shandra, the health minister, you claim to believe in the sanctity of human life. Well, that's what you say now. It wasn't long ago you were scolding those of us who were so concerned about needlessly lost lives. Economy, 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 you said. That was your mantra. You didn't care about lives then, Mr. Premier, and we still don't think you do. If you did, you would ensure the enforcement of the regulations were the norm. We can tell you there is no apparent enforcement. When we contact authorities to report violators, nothing's done. If a person chooses to break health regulations today, there are no consequences. Police, bylaw, Alberta Health will not respond. So law-abiding folks are getting angrier and angrier, and COVID-19 numbers are soaring, and hospitals are filling up. ICUs are seeing more COVID-19 patients. Daily death tolls surely will spike. Mr. Premier, it's time to lead. It's time to be courageous. It's time to do the science-based, medically sound thing. And it's better late than never. If you choose to enforce nothing, we will see a fourth wave. Uh, from Nancy and Deanna, real talkers out of St. Albert, Alberta. We're going to talk about the politics of all of this in just a moment with Susan Wright, as mentioned. But first, we want to remind you that the team at Westworld Computers powers this show each and every morning, and they want to do the same for you. Whether it's your home or business, whether it's an iPhone, whether it's an iPad, whether it's a MacBook Pro like the one I use, or whether it's a big desktop desktop iMac like the one that Sam's rocking here through camera four they've got you covered at Westworld Computers plus if your budget calls for something maybe a little more low key maybe something gently used but you want to buy it with confidence like you don't want to go on Kijiji because who knows what you're going to get the team at Westworld reloads the software on these gently pre-owned units they they basically reapply a warranty you can get all the details from the store and of course they knock the top right off the price just like Alberta's Rocky Mountains and coal, Westworld Computers knocks the top off. No, I'm not sure they want that. But go see Daryl and the team. He and his family for more than 40 years have owned and operated this shop, and they're proud of the connections that they have with their customers. So is the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. You talk about in the car business, the truck business, the SUV business, consumer loyalty is king. 
and they're proud of the relationships that they've built, whether it's a Ram 1500 you're driving, maybe one of those Ram 3500s to pull your fifth wheel this summer, or maybe it's the Jeep lineup that's caught your eye, that brand new Grand Wagoneer set to drop. It's going to redefine the luxury SUV market when it comes to the most trusted brand in 4x4s, Jeep. You won't find a better selection than you will at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Go see Scott and his teams today. Susan Wright was a, a lawyer and an executive in the energy sector. Uh, she was working in oil, natural gas, petrochemicals, and pipelines before she became a blogger and a writer. Uh, she's developed a cult following, which includes yours truly. She uh, very clearly has a keen interest in provincial politics, and she shares her views on her award-winning blog, Susan on the Soapbox, making her Real Talk debut this morning. It is a real pleasure to welcome you here. Thanks for making time for us. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, Susan, I want to encourage you, as you do on your blog, uh, and as if you, as you've always done, to shoot from the hip and to speak frankly and take this wherever you like. I mean, is it is it fair to say that uh, right now we're seeing perhaps? Um, some, I mean, when it comes to Dr. Dina Hinshaw, Alberta's chief medical officer of health, when it comes to the premier's office, when it comes to the health minister, we're seeing a dynamic right now that maybe hasn't been evident, uh, at least not 9, 10, 11 months ago. It seems to me like the climate's changing a little bit, politically speaking. What are you picking up on? Uh, actually, I think you're right about the climate changing. And where I really started noticing this in the last little while was, uh, as I put it in, in my last blog, when I was wandering down the streets of our very conservative neighborhood here in Calgary and noticing a plethora of lawn signs popping up, which covered the, the entire landscape, the waterscape, uh, defend our parks, save our mountains, protect public health, um, you know, support or don't cut funding for our, our post-secondary schools. It just went on and on. And I, and I looked at these houses, these beautiful big houses with that I know are full of very conservative thinkers. And it, it dawned on me that the resistance that we're seeing to the policies that we're getting out of Edmonton is getting stronger and it's becoming much more broad based. So um, what I'm now noticing is that uh, Premier Kenny and his government have managed to do something that no other government has done before. And that's basically appeal across partisan party lines to every demographic, every economic group, every single uh, age category to resist one or more of their policies. And that's remarkable. I mean, normally brand, brand loyalty, as you mentioned, customer loyalty in your earlier when you were chatting, uh, normally customer loyalty, brand loyalty in Alberta will carry uh, a, a government a long way. This government is starting to fracture. You know, one of the and, and I don't want to oversimplify why that's happening, but it's it's a very unique scenario where I think you could probably say uh, to, to invoke the euphemism, the premier's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you have you have a whole bunch of people that believe that the government of Alberta is not doing nearly enough when it comes to, to flattening the curve. And then there are many that believe that the government's doing way too much. And those are two difficult masters to serve at the same time. I agree. Well, I think what we're seeing here with the, the effort to flatten the curve is similar to many other efforts that this government has made, where they're, they're looking to find a middle ground to try and appease both what they call both sides. And there really isn't a middle ground when you're looking at something like um, uh, science, scientific fact and evidence that says 
this is what's going to happen. And the doctors have been telling us for quite some time. If you continue to not enforce the regulations, the mayor that you had on just before, the mayor of Edson said, can't we just follow the rules? If we followed the rules, we wouldn't be in as bad a jam as we are now. And um, uh, what it what it feels like is that as as Premier Kenny's trying to work in that middle ground, he's actually not in the middle ground. He's way off to one side and he thinks he's trying to appease the middle. But the middle is he's not in the middle anymore. He's off somewhere in in a funny zone, which, um, you know, when he's trying to say all the, the things he said yesterday to um, he responded to one of the reporters questions about how do you what do you say to people who go to church when they're not supposed to be going to church, like packing the churches. And he's he, you know, he, he tries to make excuses and he says things like we're all tired um, and, uh, you know, we need to look into our, our beliefs and, and try to approach this in, in a spiritual way. That doesn't actually help when you've got a bunch of people violating the, the law that he himself has passed, you know, and, and is not enforcing. But we're just we're very skeptical of, of his commitment to doing this in, in a way that basically protects health. As your two, the, the email you just read out points out that for all this talk about sanctity of life, we're not seeing a lot of cohesion in his approach to these things. He's not firm. He's not clear. Um, and he's not enforcing the, the regulations he's put in place himself. Uh, I, I've got this uh, email here from from Graham. Uh, he reached us at talk at RyanJesperson.com. I, I won't read the whole thing, Susan, but this is exactly what you're talking about. I, I, I read virtually everything you post uh, on your site. And if I remember correctly, you were, you're talking about the constituency of Calgary Elbow, aren't you? Uh, I am. Yeah, you're talking about Calgary Elbow. So so anybody that knows Calgary, I mean, first of all, they'll remember that that's where the Alberta party was able to to, to make an inroad. Right. So so Calgary Elbow kind of showed some interesting open mindedness there. It was also wasn't it also Ralph Klein's riding, if I remember? Uh, no, I think Klein is further south. Was he we, further we ended south? Up with, yeah, we had uh, Dirks, Gordon, Gordon, oh, Gordon Dirks, Dirks so right. The first yeah. for a short time, the education minister. Um, but, but, right. but so Calgary Elbow is an interesting one because it's it's, you know, potentially perhaps in, in, in some pockets, the, the highest property taxes in the city. It's all those beautiful homes on Sifton Boulevard and Elbow Drive and everybody knows the neighborhood. So when you start seeing lawn signs that challenge the provincial government, it's significant. Like you said, it's not like some 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 orange island riding in the city of Edmonton where you'd say, well, tell me something I don't know. So I got this yeah. this email from Graham and it's interesting. He says, I was born and raised here. I've lived in Alberta my entire life. My family goes back five generations in Alberta. My great great grandfather was a pioneer who settled in the peace country before Alberta existed. I'm 40. I've worked in oil and gas, and I've always voted conservative. I've never felt the need to email my MLA. He goes on to say, the past few years have not been kind to Alberta. The economy is not what Albertans my age are accustomed to. He's 40. And COVID has affected us in so many ways, it's hard to comprehend. We adapt. We accept our new reality. We move forward. But I'm having a real problem accepting things this government has done. And he goes on to provide a list. He says, the mm -hmm. pipeline, coal. UCP travel during restrictions, war room spending, treatment of doctors, treatment of nurses, treatment of teachers. And his email goes on. This is what yeah. you're writing about. Your, your post Easter in Alberta at Susan on the This is essentially the theme that you tap into. It, 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 it's starting to look like death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, it is. And actually, what really troubles me about what's happening here, uh, when you think about this coming from a government, is, is I'm, I'm trying to understand what drives this government. And, and at first, we're all thinking about, oh, well, it's ideological or something. But at the same time, I had expected 
a like a hard right conservative government to be making what seem to be sensible cost benefit decisions. And what I'm not seeing is, is any level of that. I, you mentioned in your introduction that I came from the business sector and businesses, when they engage in strategy, they say, it's going to cost me this much and I'm going to get this much benefit. Yeah, it's worth it. So when I look at something like the, the coal mining, the government would, before they launch on some a project like that, they must've thought to themselves, what are we going to get if we allow more coal mining in the mountains, in the Rockies and in the headwaters? Uh, so it's going to be jobs, they're going to be worth an X amount of dollars, there's going to be some coal royalties, and there's going to be a little bit of uh, um, 8% corporate uh, tax. What is, what is it going to cost us to counterback, uh, counteract that benefit? What is the cost going to be? And I think they completely missed the cost. They, didn't not, they don't value the impact it has on the environment. They certainly didn't understand that it would impact so many Albertans from across so many different um, population segments, young ones, old ones, uh, people who live in the city who like to go out to the mountains, the rural people who are downstream of the rivers that may or may not be polluted, probably will be polluted. You know, it goes on and on. And I'm thinking, so why did they not value that part? Why didn't they look at that part of the equation and say, this may not be a really good idea? So what, when you start seeing how broad-based the uh, changes are as, as your your um, uh, that are just indicated, doctors, nurses, teachers, uh, higher education, um, the pipeline, the war room, the non-public public inquiry. It, it just goes on and on and on. And I keep saying to myself, what's the driver here? And ultimately what you end up with is there is no real sensible, logical driver. It's some kind of ideological thinking that seems to say, I know what's best for this province and this is how we're going to ram it through. And that's not the way Albertans roll. We don't we don't appreciate that. To say the least, and 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 I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails to prove it. Um, I thought that I thought that you worded it great, and, and and we're reading this over the Easter weekend. You say whether you observe Easter Passover or the rising of the first full moon after the spring equinox, this is the time of year when we emerge from the gloom of winter with renewed hope for spring. Beautiful wordsmithing, by the way. But you go on to say, and you point out quite rightfully so, that some of us are crawling out of a pit. Um, Sam, let's take a look at it. This is Susan on the soapbox.com. Crawling out of a pit that is darker and bleaker than in past years as COVID-19 ravages our families and our community. This ordeal exacerbated by what you say, Susan, is the Kenny government's mismanagement of the pandemic on all fronts. And then here's where the rubber really hits the road on the column. You say, add to that the onslaught of cruel and misguided UCP government policies. Cruel is a hell of a word to invoke, and you don't typically write it unless you can back it up. So where do you see cruelty manifesting itself? I would actually I would start probably with this um, horrible mess of a non-negotiation with the doctors. We have doctors who are working their tails off for months and months and months who have gone through unbelievable stress to try and keep Albertans alive, keep them alive. And then what we have beating away in the background is a minister of health who they, they pass a law that allows the minister of health to rip up their contract. Then they are told that they're going to have all sorts of reductions in their fees. Then they're told that they have until the end of March to agree to a certain agreement or various things will happen. Different things that they were going to get will disappear. Other things may or may not be put in place. So they don't even know what their compensation is, you know, and yet they're expected to go into the, the, uh, the hospitals and to go into their, their, uh, uh, clinics 
and treat Albertans. So, you know, while they're working 15, 20 hours a day under this kind of stress, trying to keep their own families healthy and safe, uh, they're, they're trying to think their way through this ridiculous agreement. And the stress that they went through, of um, all things to do to someone at this point in time in our history, that was appallingly cruel. Where do you see that going? It was interesting. I mean, some people are calling it. It's interesting to see the different interpretations. Fifty three percent of Alberta doctors that voted on that negotiated deal, um, about eleven thousand of them, I think it was that voted uh, turnout, I think was about fifty nine, sixty percent. Fifty three percent said no to it. Forty seven percent said yes. I've seen some people say the health minister should be replaced. I've seen other people argue that that they're, they're so close to a deal that you don't change a minister mid negotiation. Uh, Tyler Shandro appears to have taken somewhat of a more conciliatory or decent or ministerial tone to it, apologizing to the doctors for implying that they had not been at loggerheads earlier. And then I've seen some people say that it's a, it's actually a failure of leadership on the AMA uh, to fail to get that 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 ball into the end zone, so to speak. What did you make of the vote last week? Well, actually, first of all, I don't think Tyler Shandro apologized to the doctors. When you look at the letter that he sent to the open letter to the doctors, what he says is that basically he acknowledges that this has been a very challenging year. What he could have done, because he he made those horrible comments about the doctors in the public press. He could have gone into the public press and said um, something like, uh, you know, we were all under a lot of stress. Things were very tense. And I may have misstated. They always say this, right? I misstated my words. I should have chosen better words. He just said it was a very challenging year for all. And we're going to try to work hard to to be better next year. That's not an apology. You know, that's like someone telling me I ripped your house apart. And, and I, you know, it was really a challenging year. Well, so what? <laughs> but anyway, as far as where is this going to go? I think that, uh, uh, no, I don't think it's a, I don't think that anyone can say that, um, Actually, I'm quite disappointed in the AMA for even presenting it as, as a, a viable option. From what I've seen of the of the um, the terms of the deal and the conversations I've had with people, um, th- that is not actually something that you're going to put on the table and say to your membership, this is great, let's sign this. When you're, you're asking people to give up their, their right to binding arbitration, that, they, that is such a, such a serious right that they're actually taking to the courts. To, to, to challenge that. And you're saying, before I sign this deal with you as the government, I want you to give up your legal right to sue me. And by the way, I may or may not address the issues you're worried about. And you'll know about that at the end of December. So they're, they're like, sure, why don't I just give it up for the next six months, lose that much time, then you shaft me at the end of December, and then I get to start all over again. It's just not right. It's, it, um, it's not fair. It's not right. Uh, right. And then as far as where the doctors are going to go, I think I think they're so tired that they what they need is someone just to leave them alone and let the status quo go. Let Chandler focus on getting on top of the covid virus so that they're not being you know torn to shreds every day that they go to work trying to save the, the humanity that makes up Alberta. And, and then let them focus on this this new negotiation after we have this behind us. You know, I. I don't care what you and I talk about, and I don't care how long we talk. People are still rightfully going to point out, you guys didn't cover this. You didn't cover this. You didn't cover yeah. this. You have to pick and choose. And mm-hmm. and, and to me, it, 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 it sort of blows my mind. It was it was like back evaluating the Trump presidency, where you yeah. you take a look at, at three or four stories any given week and say, if, if Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush or, or any other president had had one of the I mean, the, the joke people would always make is like Obama wore a tan suit and the Internet exploded. But but Donald Trump can do 
fill in the blank and it flies under the radar. It almost seems to be the similar situation with the United Conservatives. I, I mean, when you're taking a look at the, you know, the investigation into anti-Albert activities, the war room, the gamble, the, the, the more than a billion dollar gamble on KXL, essentially placing a, a wager on a Trump mm-hmm. reelection. Um, talking about, uh, you know, I mean, Bill one, uh, as you write, curtailing the right to peaceful protest. I mean, take your yeah. pick. I mean, right now I can even just look back on this, this email from Graham that I just read briefly from he, he goes on. He, he says he says, I'm a proud Albertan. But like, what's this about our own pension plan? What's this about an Alberta police force? There's no talk about that. Nobody campaigned on that. I mean, it's thing after thing after thing. So. You're anecdotally seeing lawn signs pop up in Calgary elbow in conservative country. But ultimately, where does this go? I'm not talking about from people that haven't been able to stand Jason Kenney for years. I'm talking about people that are finding themselves in unfamiliar territory right now. Yeah, well, actually, that's that's for me, that's a really interesting point, because what you've got, as I said, is so many people from across all spectrums of Alberta life from all sorts of different political parties. And, and when you see these signs show up, these are not signs that you immediately as, um, associate with the NDP or with conservatives or anybody. These are just people who are worried about the headwaters. And I think what happens is when you finally hit that one point that matters the most to a certain Albertan and you manage to break their trust, then they're going to be feeling betrayed and confused and upset. I mean, and I, I'm sure there are many doctors who voted UCP who are shocked and disappointed by what had happened with their contract negotiation. When you hit people where they, they, they've lost trust, then they're going to have to step back and say, there has to be a better way. And I think this is where the, the NDP have an opportunity to, to show a different vision, to show something positive. Now, what's difficult is every time you turn around, as you said, something comes blasting out of the, the um, uh, premier's office and people react to it. If it's not Bigfoot, it's something else. So we're on this treadmill like a little gopher going, or a gerbil running around in circles trying to chase these things one after another after another. But when you step back and you say, you look at the list, you say, so what can I trust these guys to do right? Because so far they've screwed up all these other things. I don't know what's left that you can trust them to do right. They promise jobs, economy and pipelines. There are no jobs, uh, admittedly, not entirely their fault. You know, the oil price crashed, but there's no backup plan. There's no vision for where we're going to take this. So that impacts economy. What's happening to our economy? We're looking at Calgary, which has got a phenomenal 25% and rising rate of, of um, office vacancies downtown. Every time you drive down the street, you see the for lease, for lease, for lease signs. So that's troubling. And then you look at uh, pipelines, which are gone. You know, we've got, we've got the ones that were in place before the Kenny government came into power and there's nothing else. So, you know, we have to have something else to look forward to, to see a vision of, and we're not seeing it. Uh, I feel like what he's done is he's basically painted Alberta into a corner and said, all you can have is jobs, economy, pipeline, it all comes through oil and gas. And if it doesn't, then it's someone else's fault. Well, when you paint me into a corner and the economy and the world is moving in a different direction, then I'm going to get really upset. And then while you're at it, you start picking off all the things that I care about, like public education, public health care, my mountaintops. Uh, you know, people are going to rebel. And I think we are seeing the rebellion. And this is why when you see the you know, look, different pollsters come through, they're coming through, they're saying, well, gee, the NDP are now moving up to 40% range uh, popularity. The UCP are moving down to 30. This is not a, this, if I were the leader of this party, I'd be very, very concerned about this. Yeah. You, you say in, in your blog post, um, as Albertans, you say, we will support Rachel Notley as the only 
credible alternative to the UCP. Um, let, let's call it two years out from a provincial election ish. Um, that, 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 that essentially it's interesting because you're, you're saying that despite the fact that there's two years, which is either an eternity or a flash in the pan, depending on your perspective, but this will be essentially, um, a choice between two parties, the next provincial election. Um, I, I wouldn't say that the last election was that I know that the Alberta party would have hoped to do better, but, but 170,000 votes isn't nothing unfortunately yeah. it turns into zero seats the alberta liberal party is 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 somewhat languishing right now i think it's fair to say and then you have this interesting development of sort of western independence and and sort of the resurgence of that wild rose-esque type libertarian conservative movement which could or could not uh become a factor it remains to be seen uh you're convinced though that this is going to be rachel v jason or rachel v somebody else in 2023 i am i am it's because the the alberta party had came they started with a little bit of a of an edge for people who might have been tired of the liberals and were looking for another alternative but they never managed to break past about 10 or 11 percent and as you said it doesn't matter what your percentage or your vote count is what matters is how many seats you have in in the legislature so if you're not going to get the majority of the seats then uh, then I, for me, I think you're just wasting your vote if you're voting for the, it's like voting for the Greens. I mean, Greens have got some lovely ideas, but they just don't have a chance in this province. So why would you vote for the Greens? Uh, the Liberals are not coming back as much as they try to to you know, gather themselves together. And that's unfortunate. I, I, frankly, I think a democracy needs more than two parties. But we are in a situation today where we have two parties. The only risk that that um, uh, or maybe the, the point you make with that may change that dynamic is if the uh, UCP actually does have a splinter group that breaks off and whether it's led by Drew Barnes or who knows who, you know, they're out there and they're gathering up the votes on the far, far, far right. So that they'd be there and then you'd have the UCP and then you'd have the NDP. And then I don't, I don't know how that dynamic would change, but I, I can't see that as helping the UCP anywhere. No, uh, I, I can't see it either. I just, I, I never know what to, what to read into the, I mean, you know, you, you would have written off the wild rose party, 15 years ago at your own peril really mm -hmm. i mean aside from a couple poor decisions of leadership uh, that ultimately ran the party into the ditch you know daniel smith quite frankly could have been the premier of alberta i mean it, it was trending that way and if a few files or a few decisions had been made differently obviously easy to say in hindsight that that story could have been different then again you know, this last election, and I'm not comparing Daniel Smith and Derek Fildebrandt, but the Freedom Conservative Party was 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 a non-factor, no matter which way you slice it. Fildebrandt didn't even come close to winning his own riding. So so I never really know. I, I do think, though, that there was such an enthusiasm around that united conservative movement. I mean, more than a million votes for the first time of any political party in Alberta's history. I, I don't think that that a fledgling sort of so-called right wing party would have had much of a chance. But I see people disillusioned with the premier. Um, we were talking about Grace Life Church. We've been talking about some rural communities that have that have that have felt like, you know, their businesses or their interests haven't been considered with regards to public health orders, masking and otherwise. So I'd be curious to see what happens over the next 18 months, we'll say. I, I think actually that there, there will be a growing appeal. Uh, to that segment of the population. And, um, you know, I don't know how I end up on these weird mailing lists, but I, I got a, a, a flyer from a 
the Project Confederation group who are now regrouping to, to think about what they want to do with respect to the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in the carbon levy. And uh, they're focusing on the things that the, the judges in dissent said, which was that this is it rips up confederation and it rips up the constitution and things are horrible and we need to do something. And this was the group that was was really pushing hard on the fair deal panel discussions and trying to see what they could do to make Alberta more independent. And so if they were they and they were not happy with Kenny um, continuing to say that he's a federalist at heart. So I, th I think what you're going to see is groups like that are, are still on, under the surface bubbling and trying to gather more support. And they will be looking for candidates, but they're, they're going to face the, fa face the same challenges that the Alberta Party and the Liberals do, is that it doesn't matter how many people you get in the popular vote. If you can't take a constituency and you can't take enough constituencies, you've done nothing. All, all they're going to do is weaken the UCP. Uh, Susan, I already knew this was going to happen. Time has flown and we've got another guest uh, locked and loaded. But may I sure. say that I'm already looking forward uh, to your next time here on the show. Thanks so much for giving us your time today. A nice work on another column hitting it out of the park at Susan on the Thank you very much. You got it. That's Susan Wright. Uh, make sure you check out her work. Uh, I'm a big fan of her perspective. Uh, and you may say, well, I don't necessarily agree with everything she says. That's never what I mean. That is never what I am implying or what I mean when I say I really enjoy talking to somebody or I really appreciate their perspective. She makes me think. And and I like that. Some of the columns that she writes, you go eh. other columns. I go bang on nail on the head. But either way. She comes at it from an intuitive, informed perspective, as mentioned, a longtime corporate lawyer working in oil and gas. And then again, now you can check her out at Susan on the in literally less than two minutes. We're going to check in with a university professor looking forward to checking in with Dr. Eric Strick Werda, a history professor on, on why he says that Alberta's draft curriculum could make or will make or maybe does make Alberta the laughing stock of Canada. We'll find out why he feels that way in less than two minutes. It's my pleasure to remind you that every single weeknight, starting at 8 p.m. until close at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, five bucks gets you one of the most inexpensive date nights going. That's right. Five bucks allows you to combo up however you wish a medium-sized dip cone and or a Sunday. You want two Sundays? Fine. You want two dip cones? Fine. You want one of each? Great. It's only going to cost you five bucks. That is every single day after 8 p.m. at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. This is also your reminder how proud we are to partner with the team at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. We've got our dogs trying out the pork right now. Um, they've been on the beef before. And they've never looked better. We really see it with our dogs, Moses and Monroe. If you know boxers and labs, you know that their coats can be magnificent when their guts are good. And their guts are good. And it's evidenced in some of the best-looking coats that we've ever seen them rocking. That's thanks to the nutritional team at Grand Dog Essentials and the advice they've given us specific to our dogs. They'd love to hear from you, too, and help you find a plan that works best for yours. At granddog.ca, if you use the promo code REALTALK, they'll take 10% off your first-time order. And, of course, a reminder that they deliver in Calgary, Edmonton, and Central Alberta. So does the team at Clean Air Club. If you sign up today at cleanairclub.com, let them know the size of furnace filter you need. The next thing you know, oftentimes the next day, you're going to find replacement furnace filters on your front doorstep. Plus, they include a little gift 
It's their way of supporting local and thanking real talkers for their great support of breathing easy. That's what they're all about. Save money, breathe easy. You'll pay less than you do in stores when you sign up at cleanairclub.ca. Well, as mentioned, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails from Albertans, from real talkers that are CCing us when it comes to their government correspondence. When you're speaking out, like like Jillian did, for example, I'm going to read her email a little bit later. This The subject line, please do not pilot this terrible curriculum. Well, if you go to CanadianDimension.com, you'll be able to read a piece from history professor Eric Strickwerda. And as you can see from the headline, he believes, the Athabasca University prof, that Alberta's draft curriculum will make the province a laughingstock. It's a pleasure to welcome to the program live this morning, Dr. Eric Strickwerda. Welcome, Doc, and thanks for making time for us. Uh, it's my pleasure, Ryan. Uh, no Albertan wants to see their province described as a laughingstock. So, so why don't we get into this? What, what, what's the premise of your argument as an associate professor of history? So basically, I wrote the article because, you know, just even on a cursory glance of the draft curriculum, especially around social studies, I found, you know, numerous errors of fact and numerous errors of sequence and just a general sort of misapprehension about the way that, you know, the, the past works and the way the way that we, um, you know, historians try to communicate the past. So um, but, you know, to be frank, I, I don't see too much profit in, in picking off the low-hanging fruit uh, of, which there, of which there are plenty of misrepresentations, misapprehensions about how history works and straight-up errors of fact and sequence. I mean, you know, we could go on and on uh, about that. Um, and and, and there's, there's plenty of all of that in the draft curriculum. Um, but, you know, maybe getting to the question of why Alberta parents and Albertans generally should care about historical errors and misrepresentations of the past. Well, for one thing, I would argue, and I'm a parent, and I've, you know, as I mentioned in, in, in a message to you, I've, I've got a, a nine-year-old who's entering grade four um, in September. Um, so I think for most parents, they, at the very least, want their kids to get factual information at the schools that they attend. Um, and, you know, right off the bat, this draft curriculum, you know, utterly fails in doing that. Um, but I think that there's something more subtle going on with, with especially the social studies component um, curricula like this one, in my view, do two things at once. They attempt to weaponize the past and then they deploy it against what its creators see as their enemies. And in this case, I think those enemies might include things like, you know, the bugbear of socialism or the big state bureaucracies, the elite, uh, whatever else they can think of basically enemies of their idea of what is right. And it fashions in a conscious way the history of Canada to ensure it aligns with a straight and narrow trajectory to their imagined present and to their imagined future. So, um, you know, we can get into some of the details. I'm, I'm a Canadian historian, so I'm not an expert on ancient Greece and ancient Rome, but as many have commented on, um, you know, one of the more controversial aspects of the curriculum is its, its focus on ancient, Greek and ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Um, and there's, of course, nothing wrong with studying those things, though, as many have pointed out, the information as it stands in this draft curriculum is likely too complex for elementary school age kids to grasp beyond, you know, just a superficial understanding. Well, yeah, not but not not I, not likely too complex, right? Like, I, 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 <laughs> it I, is I, too complex. Let, let's let's have some real talk here. It's 
preposterous. It's absolutely ridiculous what they're talking about, like like kids in grade two. I've had parents writing in saying like my kid talks about getting a pet unicorn and they're they're talking to them about learning about Genghis Khan and the Silk Road and, and, and you know, the, sort of the Greek history of I mean, it's 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 almost ludicrous. Well, and, and it, it borders on, right, sort of a, a, a random grab bag of, of facts without offering the kids any, you know, proper historical context, right, um, which, is, which is what we emphasize when we do history, right? You, history isn't, you know, you know, as I said in the piece, it's not rote memorization of, of facts, right? Um, facts are, are easily uh, come by, um, you know, even, uh, you know, maybe especially correct facts are easily come by. Um, in this case, the, the curriculum writers seem to have had a little bit of trouble with that. Um, but it, it's it's all about the context, right? And it's it's about um, how we frame uh, the past, and and you know how we make the past meaningful to us in the present, and help us understand, you know, how we got to where we are, for example, right? And and if it's you know just a a, a rote you know collection of random facts about Genghis Khan and the Silk Road, and you know the pyramids here, and all of these kinds of things, this this isn't really going to give you know, elementary school kids, any sense of, of how history works, any sense of, of what it is that historians do and how we produce history. Um, and certainly, you know, it's, it, you know, as I mentioned in, in the Canadian Dimension piece, you know, it, it, it may well make kids hate history <laughs> yeah. because who wants to just sit around and, and, and you know, and, and memorize random you know, facts. Yeah. And, and I think that you, you touched on this as well. It indicates that the perception of uh, of the mandate of social studies being to simply win games of trivial pursuit, uh, which is is not the case. That's not the uh, that's not my understanding, at least, although I will say. I do have a huge bias here because I think that when I look back on my junior high and high school career, so to speak, as a student, my social studies teachers were always the ones were typically the ones, let me say, that made the biggest impression on me. They, they, they helped mm-hmm. me understand the world around me. It started at a community level and it grew out. And I was blessed enough to have social studies teachers that that, that encouraged us to develop that that way of thinking. I mean, Tracy's watching live right now on YouTube. She says, you know, there's not enough wine for the teachers and parents of this province to implement this garbage when you talk about weaponizing the past can you give us a specific example of the type of thing that you're talking about sure um i'll I'll give you a quote from from american philosopher sean illing who's writing in vox a couple of of years ago Um, and this is specifically about ancient greece and ancient rome Um, and he, he, he argues that when it comes to the alt-right drawing heavily on ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and this is a quote from him, the idea isn't merely to celebrate these ancient cultures. The goal is instead to turn a phrase like Western civilization into code for white culture and to cement a narrative about history that glorifies patriarchy and undercuts cultural progressivism. So I think that that begins to, to give you a sense of, of what I mean about how the past can be weaponized um, and, and deployed um, to satisfy a particular narrative um, about, you know, uh, about, you know, anything really. But in this case, I would argue with, with the UCP government, you know, it's an emphasis on small L liberalism, small government, um, you know, such as it is, um, you know, and, and, and other things too, like, uh, you know, like, like, a celebration of capitalism. And, you know, that's not to say that there's anything wrong with capitalism, but, you know, we want our kids, I think, coming out of, 
you know, all of the grade schools all the way up until grade 12 with uh, the capacity to think critically about, you know, capitalism, both good and bad. And I think everybody, you know, would acknowledge that there are, you know, uh, inequalities sort of built into the social systems, uh, including capitalism, that, that inform our lives, Right. Uh, the amount of times you, you used the word, the, the, the filthy, dirty word, the S word of socialism, the filthy, filthy, <laughs> dirty word. Uh, you used that earlier, but I, I see that invoked. I see socialism or socialist invoked so frequently and, and, and so often, um, oftentimes flung at me like like some sort of a some sort of a mud ball on a on a springtime playground you dirty filthy socialist and every single time it happens every time i see one of those lobbed my way i think wouldn't it have been great if in elementary school we actually taught people what socialism actually is what it actually means and how it manifests itself in society including right here in western canada there seems to be a complete misunderstanding of what it is where it's practiced what it's all about but it's a powerful word politically yeah and it's it's uh you know in in recent years it seems to have surpassed you know what you know in the american context they would call the the libs right um we're going to own the libs uh you know is is something that you know like a, a trump fan might say um but you know it's since sort of become conflated with socialism or you know progressivism or cultural progressivism or something like that as if these are you know um are are things that that are inherently bad for you know society um and and you're absolutely right the you know these kinds of isms and that includes capitalism it includes socialism it includes communism right i mean this is the place to kind of begin to get uh, you know, a, a basic grounding and foundation in, in, in understanding, you know, the, the, the logic and dynamic of, of our society and, and other people's societies, other societies around the world. Right. When you, when you talk about I mean, I want to circle back. First of all, to, to reintroduce you to our audience, because I think this is important. I mean, yes, you're Dr. Eric Strickwerda. Yes, you're a professor of history at Athabasca University. You're also a dad. And I've noticed like this this common theme um, in a lot of the emails we receive, a lot of the feedback from audience members, a lot of the commentary that I see on social media. People will say, you know, as an Albertan and a teacher or as a teacher and a parent or as a parent and a taxpayer, like people see things kind of from from perspectives that are that are more than one layer deep. It might be an obvious question, but do you care more about this? Do you think because you're a dad? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, what first sort of raised my ire about this was, you know, just just the basic errors of fact that, you know, even if those errors of fact were were fixed somehow, even if, if the government hired, you know, like a whole army of people to go line by line through the entire curriculum and, and you know, and, and fix the errors, you know, that, that wouldn't save this document in my view, right? Um, because it's just so profoundly... Um, uh, problematical, right? In in terms of you know uh, what we've already talked about, you and I, Ryan, which which is you know uh, the the random collection of facts without context. Um, and I know that these kids are eventually going to come to me, probably, or someone like me in university. And you know, 
they're they're you know possibly as we said before they're they're going to dislike have a profound dislike for history um so maybe they won't come to me right um but it's going to take a lot of unlearning uh, about how we think about history how we think about you know the contingency of the past how we think about the importance of you know analyzing and understanding continuities and change over time right this this is what gets really to the heart of how we understand you know not just how history works but but our place you know right here and right now and and where we're going right you uh, so uh, but 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 of course you know uh, the, you know the corollary to that is is you know with with a kid who is going into grade 4 and, and in the Canadian dimension piece i focus specifically on the grade 4 social studies curriculum um of course you know that concerns me and i don't want you know my kid coming home and and you know we're around the dinner table and and you know he's like you know dad i i hate history uh, all we did today is memorize you know some random things and then you know and then maybe he'll come up and he'll say look at you know this is what we learned and i'll have to say well that that's not really what happened you know <laughs> so then he's getting a history lesson from his dad which i'm sure is not something that he wants <laughs> i i think well, uh, I mean, you, you you could do worse than to learn history from your dad who's got a Ph.D. in it. But I digress. So at CanadianDimension.com, people can read your piece. Alberta's draft curriculum will make the province a laughing stock. And, and, and I think that that, Professor, people appreciate specifics like like why don't we get into some of the stuff you're talking about? People will say, OK, all right. All right, Professor. Like, where are the inaccuracies or where are the omissions? What specifically are you talking about? You get into it. In the understanding of 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 the role that the Northwest Mounted Police played, for example, or the omission of a pretty significant historical player in Canada, Louis Riel, another example. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, like I said, I, I just kind of grabbed a few of the more glaring examples, right? So in in the one uh, learning outcome, I think that's what they called it. I don't have my article in front of me right now, but um, you know, they, they 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 got the sequence out of order. So somehow, you know, the the treaties and the uh, the creation of the Northwest Mounted Police led in in according to this learning outcome led to the transfer of you know a huge swath of, of North America uh, from the British Crown to the Dominion of Canada. Um, well that's fine except for you know the transfer happened in 1870 and the Northwest Mounted Police weren't created until 1873 and the treaties you know didn't begin even their their opening negotiations until 1871. So you know I'm not sure how the Mounties and the number of treaties you know, could lead to the transfer. I mean, they came after the transfer. So that is, is, is sort of one example. But the other one, which, which you've raised, Ryan, and I raise in the piece too, is the whole learning outcome. And here, you know, we kind of get to the context that I'm talking about, is that somehow those uh, items that, that the curriculum designers or writers included um, make it sound like it was really a, a, an untroubled real estate deal um, and that it was inevitable and, you know, that it was to the good for, you know, the people of Western Canada, the people of Canada, um, you know, and eventually led to, you know, the, 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 the nation that we know and love today. Um, but what, what it omits, of course, is, is Louis Riel and, and his followers' resistance at Red River, sort of what's today the Winnipeg area, um, and 
Louis Riel's formation of, of a provisional government. And, um, you know, the federal government initially expecting in uh, December for the transfer to take place um, had to rapidly draw those plans back um, and, 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 you know, and negotiate with, with Riel and his followers. Um, and, and, you know, and then eventually they, they got the deal um, in 1870. Um, you know, and, and just as a side note, um, somewhere else in the curriculum, uh, they do put the transfer at 1869 uh, when it didn't happen in 1869. So, you know, people will say, well, you're getting nitpicky. Um, but there's a whole story behind that 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 frankly needs to be told. <laughs> I don't actually mind if um, like historians or accountants or surgeons are somewhat nitpicky. As a matter of fact, I find it to be somewhat of an asset. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, another another big example, right, that I, I raise in, 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 the, in the piece is, you know, the, the curriculum asserts that, you know, Palliser's Triangle, this huge triangular shaped swath of land in the southern prairies and northern states, um, you know, convinced everybody that that, you know, that the West was was going to be an agriculturally suitable place. Um, and as I point out, in, if you read the Palliser's report, um, that, that, that he releases in 1860. In fact, that's exactly the area that he says is not suitable. And anybody, you know, who, who you know, has even a cursory uh, knowledge of the Great Depression of the 1930s, one of the iconic images that will come to mind, of course, is the Dust Bowl conditions right in Palliser's Triangle, right where he uh, identified that that would be and that would cause a problem. Um, and this curriculum is trying to make the case that that is the most suitable for agriculture, when in fact it's the exact opposite. It's the least suitable for agriculture. I heard major th- error, uh, like very significant, and I think important. I mean, it, it, and we haven't even talked about the fact that that significant portions of of this curriculum appear to be. I'll say that to keep myself in the safe zone. Appear to be directly plagiarized. Uh, the, some of them have come under great criticism for eliminating coverage or discussion about uh, the Canadian Chart of Rights and Freedoms. I saw one person on Twitter. I wish I could remember who it was so I could credit them. But someone said, are you telling me in an oil and gas jurisdiction we're seriously eliminating reference to the dinosaurs in a jurisdiction that's made all its money from fossil fuels? I mean, there's just some some sort of I guess what I'm saying is we're all laughing so we don't cry. Uh, one of the podcasts that I listened to, The Strategists, I heard Stephen Carter uh, say, Alison Redford's former chief of staff, went on the record and said that his daughter at university age, uh, in applying to other universities across Canada, I didn't actually know this. It's been a while since I was there. But apparently students out of Alberta have seen like three or five percent grade bumps. Have you heard about this? If you're coming out of Alberta and applying to university, for, you know, for example, in, I don't know, Halifax or Montreal or Winnipeg or wherever, a lot of times your 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 grade 12 level grades, they'll give you credit for three to five percent up because of Alberta's excellent reputation. And he asserts that that's gone. I mean, that would be one of the potential costs of this. What are you most concerned about here? What's at stake? So uh, I think that a, a lot of things are, are at stake. Um, you know, some of the things that we've, we've already talked about, um, but I think that parents need to be concerned 
uh, about the way this draft curriculum tries hard to sanitize our national history as much as possible and focus instead on a kind of celebratory history that papers over Canada's colonialist past and denies as far as possible that that, that colonial past continues to infuse our social relations and institutions today. So that, I think, ought to be deeply concerning to parents, right? That not only are their kids getting factually incorrect information, not only are their kids getting overwhelmed with random facts, but that this draft curriculum, again, in my view, right, does paper over the colonial past and, and the, 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 the ways that that colonial past continue to infuse our, um, our very society. Um, and that's a problem, right? Students, as, as you suggest, who go to other provinces for their post-secondary education, should they choose to do that, um, you know, I think that, that the profs they encounter there, you know, would be quite baffled by, you know, the, the kind of, of curriculum that, that these kids will have gone through and, and the kinds of understandings that they, you know, have or don't have about, you know, really how this nation works, how history works and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I think in the end, it's going to put Al Alberta kids at, uh, at, at a real disadvantage. And, you know, we've already seen some of the fallout, like the Northwest Territories, for instance, um, you know, choosing not to follow um, Alberta's curriculum precisely for these reasons that we're talking about. Um, a number of school boards um, across this province have said explicitly, we will not uh, pilot this draft um, you know, it needs to go back to the drawing board. And, and, and people have been raising the question about why the UCP government felt the need to, you know, to, to, to chop, you know, the, the, the original draft curriculum that had really started in, in the progressive conservative government years um, that, that the NDP carried through. Um, and that was really the result of, of hundreds of hours of work by hundreds of, of you know, professional teachers, you know, in, uh, informed and interested parents and curriculum developers, people who, who really know what they're doing and, and know how to spot, you know, problems with the curriculum. Yeah, but I mean, to be honest, the real talk is we know exactly why it happened, right? It's a it's a, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a performative exercise, right? It's the idea of putting the curriculum through the shredder. It's the idea of promise made, promise kept. We're going to put the right. curriculum through the shredder, shredder. These these ideological university professors or these these ideological teachers, like thousands of them on mass, uh, these ideal, you know, hammering in these ideologies. And we're going to stop that and we're going to go. And, you know, we believe that parents know what's best, not the PhDs, not the ivory tower experts. Right. That's the whole thing. It's it's not just placating the base. It's 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 almost sort of sort of riling it up. The, the fact of the matter is, though, at what cost? And here's where I think Albertans are starting to and it doesn't matter who they voted for it last time, because we see evidence of it all the time in the correspondence to the show. People might say, eh, I mean, you know, should Alberta have a war room or not? I can I can kind of see that, you know, I can kind of make an argument for it and, and maybe we should fight for it. So I don't know. OK, yeah, I mean, maybe or, or there's another initiative like, you know, should should orthopedic surgeons be able to open private clinics? Well, I mean, as long as public health care is still fun. OK, I mean, I guess, you know, whatever. But once you start talking about matters with 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 legitimate permanent impact, like you look at what what has awoken Albertans like lopping the top off the Rocky Mountains to get at coal. That is pissing people off because it's permanent. 
and 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 infusing curriculum with outdated 50s era ideology that's that has a permanent impact or at least it puts alberta's young learners behind the eight ball or or swimming upstream and that's where i see people really starting to come alive it's the issues that are personal and potentially permanent and and you know you you make a, a really important point there that that you know a lot of the thinking behind this new draft curriculum um, was premised on the notion an imagined notion I think um, that somehow uh, our grade schools are churning out you know so-called social justice warriors um, and that this draft curriculum especially the so- social studies section is really meant to combat that and instead produce, you know, like a generation of kids, um, well, that frankly align with this current government's, you know, ideological bent. Um, And I think that, you know, whatever your politics, I think that whatever, you know, your, your, your thoughts on, you know, small L liberalism or neoliberalism or whatever, um, I, I think that, that that should be concerning to parents, that, that the government appears to be, you know, you know, literally trying to engineer an entire generation of kids into a particular way of thinking. Um, and that worries me, too. Dr. Eric Strickwerda is a professor of Canadian history at Athabasca University. You can read the piece that we've been discussing at CanadianDimension.com. And Sam, just because we're proud subscribers to Alberta Views Magazine too, let me just say, uh, doctor, this one worth a read as well. You put this together last year. Actually, can I I ask you about this real quick? I know we've got to let you go. We asked you to, we're a bit into overtime here, but real quick, um, Alberta's premier loves to invoke the legacies of Ralph Klein and Peter Lougheed. But you argue in this piece, albeit from last June, that the uncanny similarity is actually with former premier Bible Bill Aberhart. What's the 60 second version of the piece? (laughs) Well, basically I I identified if I recall correctly about four things that um, made me feel like we were sort of being transported back to 1935, which is when uh, Aberhart formed the government. Um, one was that we were, you know, in the midst of, of uh, what seemed to be an intractable recession, which, you know, many would argue we still are. Um, everybody knows that in, in 1935, Alberta was in, you know, in an intractable depression uh, and nobody, uh, governments included, really knew how to solve the problem. Um, both Aberhart and Kenny came to power um, in that context. Um, but also um, on the basis of, of you know, promises um, that were unlikely to work. Um, but Albertans bought into them because, in my view, um, as, in both cases, in the 1930s and in the 2019 election, um, Albertans just didn't know how to solve this intractable, you know, economic calamity. Um, and, and so they, they, they listened to, you know, frankly, the crazy ideas of, of Eberhardt, um, which included, you know, the, the incoherent theory of social credit, um, which people can read up uh, about more if they're if they're so inclined. Um, and and Jason Kenney's improbable, you know, pipelines, you know, jobs, prosperity, whatever his his thing was, um, you know, that this wasn't going to solve the problem, right? Um, that you know, getting more pipelines isn't going to um, change the price, the, the worldwide price of oil, for example. Um, and then I had one last component, if you just bear with me, and that's the, 
the, the seemingly authoritarian style of both Eberhardt and Jason Kenney. So in, in both instances, you know, they were right all the time. Everyone else was wrong. Um, and they blasted through with their policies, um, even though their policies were clearly failing um, and, and, and failing to produce results. Um, and, and, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that kind of authoritarian streak, you know, uh, was troubling in the 1930s um, in, in, in many respects, as people can imagine, um, but it's equally troubling today. Hell of a Real Talk debut, uh, Doctor. Thanks so much for this. We appreciate your time. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, thank, I thank you for inviting me on the, on the show. I look forward to having you back. That's Dr. Eric Strickward, a professor of Canadian history uh, out of Athabasca University. Yeah, check out this quote. You can read it. Again, it's from last June at albertaviews.ca. Each leader, he's talking Kenny and Eberhardt, arose during an economic downturn, made unrealistic promises, traded heavily in conspiracy theories, and featured worryingly authoritarian tendencies that's dr eric strickwerda let's get back to graham's email you remember this graham is the 40 year old says his great great granddad was a pioneer they settled in peace country before 1905 before alberta was a province he says i've worked in oil and gas i've always voted conservative i read this before our conversation with susan wright he goes on to say the latest curriculum is just bonkers he says, and I don't even have kids that age. I've just read the highlights. The social studies and the math curriculum doesn't even seem viable. Kids that young can't soak that in at that age. I'm, I'm worried about the lack of Canadian history and the inclusion of all that American history. Why? Doesn't Canada come first? Kids deserve better. Let teachers have their say. They're the experts. Writing this curriculum without their input is like changing how doctors perform surgery and then leaving them out of the decision process. Sounds crazy, right? Graham says, I'm not a teacher, but I would think that changing the entire curriculum during a pandemic when education has been hugely disrupted is a poor choice. Graham goes on to say, you can't tell me that members of the United Conservative Party aren't nervous about all this. The last conservative premier who had such low approval ratings was removed as leader. The party then saw the writing on the wall. I'm here to tell you, says Graham, the writing is bold and clear. The party has two years left to try to fix this mess. Mess. Graham says, I'm being honest in saying that if an election was to be held today, I would not vote for the United Conservatives. This shocks me as I have never considered voting anything but conservative. There's no such thing as a perfect government, but a capable government listens to the people of this province. It's time to listen. That from Graham. Graham, thanks for that. I told you I'd get to Jillian's email as well. Please do not pilot this terrible curriculum, she pleads. She writes to Robert Martin, who's the chief superintendent of Edmonton Catholic School, says we're writing as teachers and parents of a child currently in second grade in an Edmonton Catholic school. We were so disappointed to read about the new curriculum. Goes on to say, you know, school districts here that are deciding that they won't pilot this curriculum is, is giving Jillian some encouragement. She says now is not the right time to try to introduce new, difficult and controversial study material. Jillian and Daniel, right? What, what's concerned our family the most is parents of a child who will be in the third grade next year is potentially having our kid sit, our kid sit through lessons on slavery in third grade. How do you think that would make a child of color like ours feel? 
And we know that the poor teachers will have no proper training or resources to help them correctly broach such a topic, aside from the fact that it that is completely inappropriate. My junior high school students struggle with learning about this stuff right now. They want to see Edmonton Catholic and Edmonton Catholic's gone on the record. I mean, this email is from April 1st. There are many Elk Island, Edmonton Catholic, Edmonton Public, St. Albert have said Wild Rose. They won't pilot this curriculum. Says serious changes need to be made, more support, more resources need to be provided. As teachers, we know, right, Jillian and Daniel, how much students will need to make up next year as we hopefully start getting back to normal in school. The last thing kids need is to find themselves taught from a new and poorly designed curriculum. It's also the last stress that parents need. They say, please continue to do what's in the best interest for kids, both in terms of their safety and providing a quality education. That's from Jillian and Daniel. We sure appreciate you CCing us on that correspondence. We're going to get to our positive reflections in just a moment. But first, let me remind you that the team at Eden Landscaping is ready to rock when it comes to transforming your outdoor space. Whether it's advice from your realtor or whether it's that inherent sense from within your own self that you could do so much more with the curb appeal of your place. Whether it's the realization that this summer is maybe not going to involve the big trip you were hoping for, but maybe that frees up a little spending money to turn your backyard into the haven, the oasis that you've always known it could be. The team at Eden Landscaping is proud to both design and build dream projects, and they've been doing it for more than 20 years. Check them out at landscapeedmonton.ca for examples on what they can do with outdoor cooking spaces or pergolas like Sam has or a swim spa or a retaining wall or a fit stone patio. They've done it all, and they'd love to work with you to make your dream come true. That's Eden Landscaping. Wanted to remind you as well that the team at Alta Moving and Storage is ready to help you embrace spring. And whether that's a long or short-term storage solution, they're Alberta's best choice. They live and work here, and they're proud to help you find the solution that fits your particular circumstance. They've been doing it for Real Talkers ever since we launched the show. And of course, their moving resources are what a lot of people are talking about. They have these pod-style moving containers. They drop them off at your place, and then you take your time. You move at your pace. If you need hired hands, they can provide that labor. If you'd rather do it yourself, again, they'll work with whatever your budget is at Alta Moving and Storage. Check them out online at altastorage.ca. And here's how we start our week. Uh, Yeah, this week, it's a short week, Sam, for sure. We're doing uh, Monday on a Wednesday, so to speak, with the team at QB Energy kicks off our Real Talk broadcast weeks with positive reflections. That's where we tell your stories, what's making you happy. Kubi Energy at kubienergy.ca is proud to be carrying out solar installations on residential, commercial, and industrial projects in BC and Alberta. They're Tesla certified. They only employ installers that are either red, uh, they're journeyman electricians or electrical apprentices. And of course, they do all your paperwork so you get all the rebates that you're entitled to. Kubienergy.ca is where you'll find them. As mentioned, every week we kick off on the right foot with Positive Reflections presented by Kubi Energy. These from emails received to talk at ryanjesperson.com. I love this one from Jacine, who wrote in simply to say, Fine! 
five, it's in all caps, five of the people I love have received vaccinations and two more already have their appointments. Jacine says, I'm so thankful for the science that's got us to this point just a year after a pandemic was declared. Amen, Jacine, and thanks so very much. We got this email from Wade, and I'm not surprised to see the technical producer of this show, Samuel L. Brooks, rolling up his sleeves. Like, but like before we get to this, initial. yeah. <laughs> well, you're sometimes Samuel G. Brooks, sometimes Sam the Man, sometimes Uncle Sam. It just depends. Sam, can you remind, for those that were maybe not tuned in, or maybe they were listening to the podcast instead of watching on YouTube, when we showed off your 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 tattoo can you show us again i can i can show it to you again this is uh this came up when uh you told me to relax and take my tie off and roll up my sleeves and my my you got to take the sam cam buddy uh, oh, people are people are I've seeing me. I've got it in preview, and you. I don't have that. Yeah, there we let's go. see the look at that there beautiful piece of art. That beautiful artwork, Pyramid Mountain, right, Sam? Well, Wade one upped us. Well, Wade. Well, did he? I mean, let's take a look at this photo. Yeah, we got this email from Wade like right after Sam showed off his art. Wade said, uh, "I'm an educator. I'm a teacher. I'm a parent, and I'm a loyal, real talker." He says, because I'm teaching while you're on, I have to catch your show later in the day or listen while my family's road tripping. He says, I use some of the anger I feel so ticked off at this government and I take it out on the elliptical on a nightly basis. So Wade burns calories while he tunes into Real Talk. But he says, this email's not about the guests I've watched. It's not about the topics you've taken on. He says, as I saw Sam Brooks get comfortable the other day and show off his ink, Right up until then, I thought I was the only human with a tattoo of Pyramid Mountain on my right forearm. He says, I've also got Mount Rundle in there as well. The two of them split by a tent. I now know the I have tent an, is my favorite. Part he of says this. I have just an so ink, peaceful. In he there. says I now know I have an ink brother in Sam G. Brooks. You guys are going to have to get together and do like some sort oh, of. Oh, I think so for sure. Real talk photo shoot. Well, I mean, we should probably do it at Pyramid Mountain. At Pyramid? Yeah. Like just go up to Jasper, go camping, oh, get, a, get a photo with our tattoos. We might have to do like Wade, some sort DM of DM me. We'll line it up. Real talk. Uh, yeah, slide into his DMs, Wade. And how about this? I wanted to wrap this story. This is great. This from Bonnie, who passed this along. This was a survey conducted uh, by one poll on behalf of Silhouette America. 2,000 adults chiming in on this. Get this. 60% of respondents say they've leveled up in one of their hobbies since the lockdown began. 60% say that they've improved their skills in one or more hobbies since the start of the COVID-19 quarantines. 56% expect to be an expert by the time that life returns to normal. So whether it's running or yoga, preparing food or knitting, painting, sketching or drawing, people say that they're getting better. They're improving themselves. They're developing their skills. I love this. 48% said they make fewer mistakes these days. 45% say they've learned to work more efficiently. And 45% of respondents said they've noticed mental improvements like better memory or focus. So whatever you're doing to hone a skill or to, to craft a new ability, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to see evidence of it. Don't be shy. Send us your videos, your photos, your good news stories. How did you pay it forward? Where did you experience a random act of kindness? You could be featured in next week's Positive Reflections, featured by Kubi Energy via talk at ryanjesperson.com. 
We'll talk to you Thursday morning live at 8.30 Mountain Time. Until then, friends, keep it real. We'll talk soon.